Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Today, we're doing something a little different. As the year winds down, it's always nice to reflect. And so today, we're going to be publishing an amalgamation, a group of some of our top rated and downloaded podcasts of the year. Enjoy today's podcast mashup. Hey friends, extra special episode for you today. No intro really needed. Our guest is the co-founder of GMO. In today's episode, our guest begins by talking about the current market, which he believes will be recorded as one of the great bubbles of financial history. He puts his bubble into historical perspective by comparing it to the Japanese bubble and then the U.S. technology and housing bubbles. He then addresses the commonly cited argument that low interest rates justify high stock valuations. Next, we touch on why he's so bullish on venture capital and has allocated most of his foundation to the asset class, making it, as he says, one of the most aggressive portfolios in the philanthropic space. As we wind down, our guest explains why he's so passionate about addressing climate change through his foundation and why China is ahead of the U.S. in the race to address the issue. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Long-time listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted, high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invest material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this amazing episode with GMO's Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hi, pleasure to be here. So Jeremy, I grew up with a Southern grandma and she had a couple of phrases, one of which was, Lord have mercy. And the other was, what intarnation? And I think both of those could be applied to what's going on in the markets today. So I'm going to start with a really technical, hard question, and that is, what in the world is going on? Yeah. <laughs> what in the world is going on? <laughs> it, uh, I mean, the exciting thing is that we're writing history. These are the stories of GameStop and so on. These are the stories that people will be telling in 30 or 40 years, like we tell stories about 2000 and even 1929. These are making breaking new ground. And everyone has their favorite example. My favorite was QuantumScape because seven years ago, we made a very substantial investment because our foundation tries to invest in stuff that will change the world in a way that will help it to decarbonize industry. And nothing could do that better than an improved battery. 
and QuantumScape has spent the last 10 years working on a uh, solid-state battery that will be half the weight, half the volume. So it has twice the power-to-weight ratio, which means instead of having a 1,000 pounds of battery in a Model 3 Tesla, which I own, a wonderful machine, incidentally, it would be suddenly weighing 500 pounds. So you'd get rid of 500 pounds of absolute dead weight. And then in addition, solid state doesn't heat up. So you save two or three or 400 pounds of cooling equipment that goes with the battery in a Tesla. So now you're talking seven or 800 pounds of complete saving. You're simply going to perform better before you even get to the battery. And then the danger of breaking into flame uh, disappears to practically zero, which is pretty handy in a car because even if one in a thousand crashes starts to to burn away, that's a public relations disaster. And it can be reassembled to recycle more easily than prior batteries. And it will charge in somewhere between eight and 12 minutes probably in the end. So it was a wonderful set of objectives. And seven years later, they have done it on a lab basis. And now they're faced with another four years which is a long time to wait, another four years before they get it rolling along the production line. And they did a SPAC deal. And I'd already committed myself to saying that SPACs were a ludicrous speculative instrument. (laughs) So that was a great irony, because this was about the biggest investment that we had ever made. When it came at 10, it was a very respectable four times our investment. So it was already significant to us. But it spent the midsummer working its way or late summer working its way to 25 or so. And then when they got approval, which should have been worth nothing because they always get approval, it exploded to 40 and then kept going and took another couple of weeks or so to get to 100, 110. And at 110, it was a 50% increment to the foundation plus any of my own money added together. So it had become absolutely massive, but couldn't be sold until May the 1st. So that brings up the second great irony, is that I was writing about the bubble forming and the, the fact that it, by January, looked pretty late stage to me, based on history, that it would break in a few weeks. So I'm not really expecting that I will get to May the 1st when I could sell some of this I think it's quite likely that the bubble will break before that. As I say, that was one of the great ironies of my life. And of course, QuantumScape then turned down from 110 to uh, the day before yesterday, 44, which is the biggest wipeout of theoretical wealth, paper wealth that I have ever had by a multiple of perhaps 10. So I've been been theoretically writing a little story about uh, how I came to love irony around QuantumScape. But when you think, here's a company that, it's a brilliant company, but it makes no bones about the fact there's four years to wait. And at 110, it was selling for more than the market value of General Motors or Panasonic to take a battery company. Not bad, eh? Well, I'm just looking forward to two things. One, I hope you're keeping a journal because like you mentioned, we still have a few months to go and hope you're having a fun cocktail party. Although I don't know what the right date would be if it would be April 30th or May 3rd. (laughs) We'll have to check back in in a few months. (laughs) You know, I have a similar story. We'll circle around to this later when we talk about venture capital had invested in an early stage company in the space sector which had been acquired, again, by a SPAC. The SPAC was actually supposed to be acquiring a cannabis company. (laughs) So you see these sort of wonky things going on. 
And Jeremy, like, you know, on one hand, we see the behavior, the euphoria. On the other hand, hey, look, you hopefully will end up with a world-class company that may be as awesome as GM and more one day, but also you can hopefully be able to recycle those profits into other new and innovative companies. So it's not all bad, but I think you are accurate in that it's a good description of the times we are right now. And as a student of history, I remember one of y'all's older papers, man, got to be over a decade ago, examining over 300 bubbles. And from someone who's lived through a handful, where do we kind of fit in right now with the U.S. markets? Is this one that's going to be on the Mount Rushmore for the U.S.? Is it not even there yet? Or is this have a ways to go? Where do you put this one in the timeline? The kind of old pros on bubbles, we have telephone calls with each other and we argue about, is this worse than the tech bubble of 2000, the internet bubble, if you will. And it used to be in the summer that some of us thought it wasn't quite and some of us thought it was. But pretty much now, we all think it's every bit as bad as 2000 and maybe even more impressive. 2000 was in a league of its own. It blew through 1929. So 1929 was a genuine, impressive bubble. And they have many characteristics, but one of which is they turn on the afterburners for the last few months and they start to rise at least twice the rate of the entire bull market since the previous real low. And uh, 1929 certainly was doing that. 1928 and 29 was just a warp drive move. And 98, 99 was, particularly for the NASDAQ, kind of doubled in the last half year of 99. And here we are where, you know, the NASDAQ is up about 100% since March. So that's uh, very impressive, more than enough to make the cut. And the Russell 2000 is up 110%. And the other characteristics are that you've got to have more and more interest in the market. You've got to have the market kind of go from the finance page to the front page. You've got to have crazy stories becoming part of the cocktail party conversation. And we certainly did in 2000. My joke then was at the Greasy Spoon lunch place that we used to go, all those eight television sets that used to be showing reruns of the Red Sox were talking heads, MSNBC giving us the latest uh, pet.coms. And that hadn't happened, by the way, throughout the long 11-year bull market. And uh, there was a little flurry in late 17 early 18, which fizzled out and it began to get some of the excitement, but it never got the quantity or the quality. But this time it has. This time it's become a real storyline and the news talks about it and the front page talks about it. And one story after another, electric trucks that have to be pushed downhill to take the photograph. And Tesla becoming worth more than the next nine global auto companies added together. And Musk, who, who of course is a genius, but nevertheless, you know, rapidly becoming the richest person in the world when a mere five years ago, he was sleeping on the factory floor wondering whether he was going to go bankrupt. It's all terrific stuff. You mentioned Musk is funny because he himself said on Twitter hundreds of stock points ago that, <laughs> that his stock was overpriced. So when the CEO founder says that, that's an interesting perspective. You know, it's funny because as I look around and see what's going on with the Reddit and Wall Street bets and modern social I see myself in the mirror 20 years ago. I was a university student in the late 90s studying engineering and being totally swept up in that bubble. For us, it was E-Trade instead of Robinhood. It was the dot-coms rather than kind of similar names today. But I mean, I recall my professors 
stopping their lectures in the middle and going and checking stock quotes, like not a joke, feeling this exuberance. And then, of course, the aftermath that followed. Is there a particular bubble that you look back on in your career as being the defining one? Would it be Japan? Would it be kind of what's going on now? The one that was the most fun for me was a, a bubble that has escaped all but the most serious aficionados of bubbles. And that was 1968-69, where tiny stocks went crazy like they are today. I was in the out of business school and I was in the dopey general management consulting. And I asked around who of my classmates were having the most fun. And by far, that was the investment business. And so I jumped ship and joined a mutual fund group in Boston. And we used to meet for lunch. And these guys were already a critical year or so ahead of me in the business. So I sat there listening to them and they would trade these kind of little rocket ship stocks that would go up five or 10 times in a few months and then kind of explode and disappear. And it didn't seem to phase them at all. They just considered anyone who got stuck in the exploding part were just nitwits. And after a few months, to be exact, three months after I got in the business, I was going to go off with my wife for three weeks holiday in, in Europe to see our families in England and Germany. And we loved the story of the week, the week before we left, which was American Raceways. American Raceways had the world champion race driver Sterling Moss on its board, and it was going to introduce Formula One Grand Prix racing to America. It's always been a kind of European, South American thing, but it never has really caught on in the US, but it was kind of power and danger and noise. It sounded to me very, very American. How could it miss? And it opened one track and it did brilliantly well because it was a novelty, of course. What did we know? We thought it was going to happen every time we had a race and it was going to be duplicated in 12 different places in America. Anyway, I bought 300 shares at seven and went on my holiday. And when I came back, it was 21, which was kind of typical. And I was thrilled. And so I did what any good value manager would do. I sold everything else I had and doubled up. Okay. And it was 100 by Christmas and I was rich. That was enough to buy a house in Newton, a Victorian house next to an orchard with a BMW only. They turned down our bid. And so we didn't buy the house. And early in 69, as my rocket ship descended, I jumped ship into another one and that blew up. And the next one blew up. And I was back where I started from with three or $4,000 left. <laughs> licking my wounds. Anyway, so that was a thoroughly exciting and thoroughly dense learning experience. And it had a lot to do with me being a more cautious investor for the rest of my career. It reminds me, I read a piece this past week from Robert Kirby, who is famous for the old coffee can portfolio idea called Tirade of a Dinosaur that was talking about that period that I thought was really thoughtful. You know, and it's funny, you look back at some of these historical bubbles, was reading an old Schiller piece that looked at sector valuations. And in the booming 20s market, you had the utility sector got to a PE ratio of 60. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, how you have, <laughs> it doesn't have to be necessarily an exciting asset class to be in a bubble. It could be something as boring as utilities. And of course, the great bubbles of the 19th century were railroads, yeah. which sound pretty stuffy to us. People love to characterize you as a bit of a bear and the challenge with where we are in 2021 already, uh, if you ask some of the quants, is that during prior 
markets, there seem to be a lot of places to hide. Certainly in the early 2000s, you could hide just about anywhere, small cap value, REITs, bonds, dividend stocks, you know, many different markets did just fine. You guys are famous and I know you don't spend as much time there anymore at GMO. And we've actually had, I think, more GMO podcast alumni than any other company. So kudos to to your crew on the podcast. But what does the lay of the land of the rest of the world look like? Is foreign stocks any better? Are there any places to hide you know, if this thing starts to turn south sooner or later? Yeah, this is kind of middle of the road. 2000 was a daydream. It was brilliant. There were whole asset classes. Bonds were cheap. And tips had just come out, inflation-protected bonds. And they, get this, they yielded 4.3 real, guaranteed, protected against inflation and guaranteed by the U.S. government, 4.3%. REITs yielded 9.1% right at the top of the market with the S&P yielding 1.6, which was the lowest in history. What a wonderful comparison. Incidentally, people said, yeah, but they grow much faster. And we said, you know, click, next exhibit. Yes, you're absolutely right. The long-term growth of the dividend stream of the REITs is precisely 1.0% a year less than the S&P. And for that, you get an extra seven points cash yield. I mean, give me a break, seven and a half. That was heaven. And 07 was not as anywhere near and early 08, not nearly as overpriced a market as 2000, as the tech bubble. But it was damn near universal. I had a quarterly letter, which started from the junkiest bonds to the greatest blue chip from land in Mayfair to downtown Tokyo, et cetera, et cetera. It's bubble time. And it was everywhere. And that made life difficult. 2000, you know, being the perfect one, real estate was pretty cheap, a whole asset class and small cap value was brilliant. And REITs were up 30 when the S&P was minus 50 right at the bottom, just to pay you back for your patience. And we made money in a global diversified portfolio. We made money in 2000, in 2001. And even by the skin of our nose in 2002, when the S&P was down 22%. So that was perfect. 07 was the most slippery one. To make money there, you had to get into the anti-risk bet. The classic anti-risk bet was long yen, short sterling, the opposite of the bet that everyone had been riding as a free lunch for several years. And it, of course, blew back in the opposite direction with a 20% gain on both sides of the trade in three months. So it was like a license to steal there as the market created. But you had to do exotic things. It was not easy. This one is in between. This one, the whole of the emerging market is a little bit cheap on a relative basis, sensational. In the housing bubble, emerging was higher priced than the S&P 500 on a PE basis. It had had the most amazingly successful run that we played and played and played, probably with hindsight, overstayed our welcome so that we, for once, were we're jumping after the peak instead of you know two years too soon. Anyway, back to today, even the rest of the world, equity markets are not too bad, which points out this interesting argument about low interest rates. The argument goes, low interest rates give us no choice. That's why the market's so high. That's why it's actually cheap, to which we say, oh, wait a second. What are the rates in the rest of the developed world? Whoops, they're a bit lower than the US and have been for a couple of years or so. And the PEs are much cheaper. 
So it casts a doubt on the sufficiency of that reason. I wouldn't say the developed world XUS is cheap, but it's not bad. It's a little bit expensive, perhaps absolutely very cheap on a relative basis to the US. But emerging is a bit better than that. And then you have the kind of low growth or value end versus the high growth. And I don't think that low growth or value is a license to steal, which it was for basically 100 years until 2000. I do think some of the dynamics of growth versus low growth has shifted. But still, the parameter is so massively depressed against low growth in favor of high growth that you know it will usher in a period of several years of movement in the opposite direction, which should be good for tens of points of outperformance, perhaps 30, 40, 50 points, I would guess. If you can add those two together, so if you go into the low growth end of emerging, you might, it's not only you might, you almost certainly will do perfectly well over 10 or 20 years. The question would be, when the US blows, will it take emerging with it? And I suspect, you know, history says, yes, it will. But let me remind you of 2002. In 2002, the S&P went down 22%, as I said. But emerging went down 2%. And that's a pretty handsome difference. Emerging had already become cheap. Cheap really matters. It's not just beta. You know, you can have stocks that typically go up and down one and a half times as much as the blue chips, like small cap. But small cap was so cheap in 2000. You pretty well knew it would outperform, and it did. And small cap value was just about break-even when the S&P was down 50, even though it had a high beta because it was so sensationally cheap. It's not so sensationally cheap today, but low growth value is. And so that's the play. Avoid the U.S., avoid the high growth. And there are some decent opportunities. Of course, however, unlike 2000, debt is ruinously expensive. And, uh, you know, in the long bond back in 82, my colleague Dick Mayo was making a personal killing, put all his money into 30-year U.S. treasuries on 90% leverage and took a deep breath. <laughs> you know, could have been wiped out, but it was a really heroic bet. And the 16% yields very quickly became 13 and the cost of carry, you know, became 10, 11, and suddenly you were making a five-point spread on the 90% you'd borrowed, plus the 16 points on the 10% principal, plus a capital gain. Those were the days. And the 16% came down to 12 and causes a bull market. And the 12 goes to eight, causes another bull market. And the eight goes to four and causes another bull market. And now it's down to rock bottom, ebbing around between a half a percent and 2%. Where do you go from there? I mean, that game, it took a long time. It was great. It's 38 years. Wow. Sorry, 32 years. That's game over. And it's a piece of cake. You lower the rates, you're going to tend to push up the, the price of assets, other things being even. And we've done that. Been there, done that, as they say. There's two sort of justifications or arguments I hear about people talking about U.S. stocks allowing their loud to be expensive. And the first one you mentioned, we wrote an article about the fallacy of stocks are allowed to be expensive because of low bonds. And the second one that people love to talk about, and I've heard it, I don't know how many dozens, hundreds of times to us, and so I'm sure you've heard it even more, is along the lines of you can't 
use valuation to timing and they'll say, they'll look back and they say, Meb, and I'm sure they say it to you too, you would have said this a year or two ago where US stocks are expensive and look, they went up, therefore you're an idiot and you're wrong and they've continued to outperform foreign. I know how I respond, but I'd love to hear your take on what do you say to those people? Because that's probably the single most heard refrain I get on, hey, you said this and it's still happening. Therefore, it's of no use to have this information. What? Uh, how do you respond? On the interest rate argument, I think that's pretty easy. I mean, if you're going to justify something as being cheap by picking the most overpriced asset and using that as a yardstick, you're an idiot. I mean, you might as well say, compared to Bitcoin or Tesla, the S&P is incredibly cheap. Whoopee, buy some more, go on margin. I mean, you have to use an absolute standard. And the absolute standard would be the margin-adjusted uh, Schiller PE. The Schiller PE is not enough on its own because for 20 years, we've been in an abnormally high US profit margin era, not in the rest of the world and clearly temporary. But the share of GDP going to corporations has jumped up for a while, it has a bit to do with monopoly and, and short-term circumstances. And I have no doubt it will tend to, to move back in the opposite direction. But I'm very tempted to digress on that point because one, one of the reasons we have low rates is because of the population profile. You know, you took uh, 600 million young and middle-aged farm workers in China whose productivity was negligible and you moved them to the cities and you took a couple of hundred million Eastern Europeans who weren't really plugged into the capitalist system at all and you plugged them in and it gave you a jolt of uh, cheap eager new labor, the like of which we had never seen in history. And that kind of drove the game for 20 years, globalization and pressure on the wages of the West. Why wouldn't it be? So they made it very easy for unions to lose all their power, for corporations to rule the roost and to increase their share of profits. And the government didn't move against that. It actually changed the laws to make it even easier for corporations to increase their share of the pie. And of course, inequality went off the scale and the measure of inequality ratio became the worst in the developed world, only outflanked by the odd Brazil. So I think that was a fairly desperate long-term consequence, which we have to live with. But now the workers in China, everyone who wanted to leave has gone and their population has entered one of the big busts of history and uh, encouraged by the one-child plan, but it's pretty much echoed everywhere anyway. So Taiwan and Korea and Japan have got the same bust that they have in Japan without any draconian one-child policy. And the baby cohorts that are coming down the pipeline here are just amazing. There was one the other day from South Korea. South Korea, under the impact of COVID, dropped from its world record 1.0 fertility rate. You need 2.1 to replace your population. And they had 1.0. And then when COVID came, it went to 0.85. And being the world's most efficient government, it seems, they reported on that first already almost two weeks ago. And 0.85, it's just amazing. It means that every 33 years, let's say a generation, you've got less than half the babies you had before. And that's been going on, of course, in Japan. So the young men appearing for military service in Japan are down by 30% already. And in 30 years, they're about 1.5. So in 30 years, uh, they'll be down to half of what they were at the peak. 
And in the US, we just came out last year, not last year, the year before, 1.7, lowest ever recorded, just below the previous low of 1931 in the depression. And this year, we may be down quite a bit because of COVID. We don't know, but maybe 1.6. And China is going to be below 1.6. These are not insignificant countries. This is a huge shift. It means that almost immediately, we're going to see, led by Japan and Korea and so on, we're going to see a shortage of workers. And instead of having extra hundreds of millions, we're going to have a shortage. And so it's going to put pressure on wages, finally. It's going to make equality look a little better. It's going to put some buying power in the hands of typical workers, but it's going to put pressure on prices. It's going to put pressure on inflation, and it's going to put pressure on real interest rates. And I suspect we will be moving back towards a kind of 20th century looking world with perfectly good GDP growth, maybe a little increase for 10 or 20 years on productivity of the workers, because when they're short, you finally, you get into capital spending to keep their productivity rolling. And you can't just easily displace it to China. The Chinese wages, you know, have gone up 15 times over 20 years, and they're now running out of workers themselves. So CapEx everywhere will tend to be trying to compensate. So productivity, which has been settling down steadily everywhere for the last 50 years, you know, when I got here, it was running at 3% a year, and now we'll be lucky if it was half that. And in addition, employment was rising at over 1% a year, and now we'll be lucky if it stays positive at all in the next 10 years in the US. And in Europe, it will definitely be negative. So there's a big downward pressure on uh, GDP growth, but there's a big shortage of labor and therefore probably a push up on productivity. And it takes us way back into the world we all grew up with, or as older people grew up with, which is a more normal return on investment, a more normal interest rate, a more normal rate of inflation. And one of the consequences to that, you will bid down the price of assets over the next 20 years, and maybe starting pretty soon. Maybe the recovery from COVID will run straight into the changes in the pressures on wages and so on. And that's the pressure on profit margins. So other things being even, that drifts back down where it came from to more normal levels of GDP. Anyway, that would be a very powerful shift and would be a major downward pressure on price earnings ratios going forward. I think it would work out pretty healthily, actually. It would mean that the new acquirers of wealth would be able to kind of get into the game at the moment with the return on most assets, half of what it used to be. It's very hard to compound wealth. You know, if you have a 6% return on your asset, whether it's stocks or a farm or a forest or a bond or a junk bond, I might say, if you're compounding at 6%, you know, you're doubling every 12 years. And if you're compounding at three, which we do today, it takes 24 years. So in 48 years, you're down to a quarter. And in 36 years, I'm sorry, in 96 years, you're pretty well disappeared. So it's a hell of a hard way to get rich compounding with high asset prices and low yields, low yields on every darn asset you could think of. So drifting back is painful at one in one way. It's painful on your portfolio price, but it's great for your compounding ability. And it's great, particularly for the young who have to get in and start acquiring assets and who can't afford a house because house prices will come down. As the population profile changes and there are fewer babies, and then 20 years later, there are fewer workers, there are fewer house buyers. 
and the housing stock becomes generously oversupplied, as it is in Japan, and the prices of land and houses relative to GDP start to drop, which is great for the young. And you just have to be braced for it. I know this is a longer term argument than you're probably bargaining for. Jeremy, I think it's good because I think it's what you describe seems like an incredibly healthy playbook. I mean, look, if you had to rewind back 10, 20 years and ask me, say, we're going to be in a world of negative yielding sovereigns, I would have said you're crazy. They didn't teach that in undergraduate. And in a world, I, I said this on Twitter the other day, I said, look, young people, and I was talking specifically to kind of everybody getting caught up with the trading of stocks in the last couple of weeks. I said, this is an unpopular take, but the best possible thing that could happen to you is the broad stock market goes down 50 to 80% because you have a much better starting point as a saver and investor to put money to work than Absolutely. you do where it's trading today. Josh Wolf said on Twitter, he said, unfortunately, this feels not like the bell at the top, but a dinner bell, which is just bringing more people into the markets at probably the worst possible time, particularly in the US. But it gave me a little bit of chills and a shudder because right now Schroeder's had a survey that asked US investors what they expected, their stock market returns, and they said 15%. <laughs> you may remember is almost identical to the surveys of 2000. And I don't know if they even did a survey in 29, but I'll guarantee that had they done it, they would have had the same result. They certainly had a famous article in Ladies Home Journal pointing out how all you had to do was buy stocks and compound and you would get rich. And you only had to put aside, you know, $1,000 here and there, and pretty soon you could retire. And that was the defining article of the era. So every cycle is the same. You only just have to go through the thought experiment of the last month of any great bubble, 89 in Japan, February, March of 2000 in the US, you know, September 1929, and the housing market peaking. The housing market actually peaked pretty early in 2006. And you think, what is the attitude in that last month? It isn't people a month from the peak. It isn't people saying, oh my, it's overpriced. That last month as it goes to the peak, every day has a higher level of optimism than the day before by definition. Just think about it. That's what it means to have the highest price, the highest PE. It means you have the highest level of optimism about the future. So as you approach the peak, your estimate of your future portfolio return goes up, not down, which is the math involved. It goes up with the psychology involved, always. It's an equation. It's how you hit the peak. You hit the peak because you have the highest level of optimism. And what day is the highest level of optimism? It's the day the market hits the peak. So the day before is higher than any other day except the last day. The week before is higher than any other week except the last week. It doesn't cool down until the final day. And then it starts to cool down. And that's deceptive too, because the market doesn't end by hitting a brick wall. The day after the peak is the second highest optimistic day of the entire cycle. It just isn't quite as optimistic as yesterday. And a week later, it's way over trend optimistic, but less than a week before. And that's why it's so damn hard to pick. And the same at the low. You know, people think, oh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I say, you know, forget it. That's not how the market bottoms. The market bottoms in a complete 
pit of despondency. It just isn't quite as bad as the day before. And so the selling pressure lets up a teensy little bit and the market starts to drift slowly up from terrible prices. And by the way, this is what I wrote in Reinvesting When Terrified, which you can find on our website, which is one of only two pieces I ever published that was not a quarterly letter because I thought it was important to get it out. And it's only one page. And it says in March of 2009, it says, Reinvesting When Terrified, you are not going to call the low. Don't think about calling the low. Just look at the prices today, you're going to get a double-digit return for at least the next seven years in almost any asset you can think of. Get your act together, grit your teeth, and start to get back into the market. Present, if you're an institution, present to your committee a program for phasing back in and do it now. But do not let inertia overtake you because that's what happens. You feel so good about the cash reserves you had and so bad about any money you put back in the market that you begin to suffer from what we used to call in 1974 kind of terminal paralysis where both parties are frozen. The guys in the market can't move. They've lost so much money. The guys who have cash can't move. They're so thrilled to have the cash. They don't want to give it up. And so everyone just sits there doing nothing. And finally, the pessimism is relieved a little bit and the market turns. Anyway, the day we posted that happened by sheer coincidence to be the exact day, not three days earlier, the exact day of the low, 666 on the S&P, what we call the devilish number, which marked the low. And we posted it that day. Just so you know, I've not been utterly bearish all my life. That's my one heroic bull paper, which is on public record, can be seen, gmo.com. And ironically, of course, I did call the low on that one, but uh, you can't do it. And you can't call the high for the reasons we're talking about. It's almost always a kind of rolling top and a rolling bottom. And for weeks in either direction, you have a pretty high level of optimism or pessimism, just not quite as much as the peak. What you can look for, though, is you can look at the great bubbles and you can say, what are the conditions of breaking? And you can't say it's overpriced. Of course, it's overpriced. But there are many markets that are overpriced for years. That's a pretty painful way to look for a market peak. But you can say that when you get rapid rising at the end of a long bull market, when it goes into warp drive, and when the speculation starts to dominate the front page of the newspaper, and the crazy stories are kind of being talked about everywhere, and you can prove for yourself. And when the bulls, like I was in 1969, you know, you know you're being crazy, as I say, in your heart of hearts you know this is far and away the most risk you've ever taken. You never thought you would take that much risk, but you are. And it's a heady trip and you're winning. What the hell? Let's go. Then a little voice, the back of your brain is beginning to say, this is too good to be true. And you squash it because it's so much fun. The sentiment, you hit the nail on the head. My favorite is the AAII allocation survey and sentiment. And they ask people, but they both said the same thing. They said, when were people most bullish on stocks? And it was literally over 35 years, January 2000. And when were they most bearish? March of 2009. And, and it was <laughs> yeah. also reflected in the allocation survey. They had the most stock exposure in January 2000, at least in March 2000. Like, you can't make that up. I mean, it's the most perfect contrary indicator. And AAI hasn't gone too crazy this cycle. It's a little bit older crowd. I wonder if they 
have the scars from 2000. But if you look at investors intelligence, Luthold does this and they take this back to the 50s and they actually use an average of the entire year of sentiment. They have this wonderful study that shows the top 10 sentiment years in history. And this is like 70 years worth. And the top 10 highest sentiment, the future year of stock returns is around zero. And the 10 worst years of sentiment, the next year stock returns were like 15 or 20%. I don't have the numbers exactly, but directionally correct. Um, however, three of the top 10 sentiment years in the entire sample are the last three years. And maybe one of the years was out of order, but it just goes to show that this cycle has sort of had this consistent and maybe ending in a, a crescendo now. But your coworker Montier had a nice chart a few years ago that showed valuations and then future three to five year drawdowns in those markets. And the more you pay up, it seemed like the big fat drawdown you have in your future. But look, you and I are talking, you referenced earlier, 10, 20 years. I think most of the people listening to this nowadays are, are talking in, in terms of minutes, days, and weeks. So it will be fun to see how this plays out. By the way, Hussman, of course, on his website with two S's, has magnificent data, clean, clear, and uh, very thorough, and very alarming if you, <laughs> if you happen to be a bull. But yeah, with the same result as James Montier pointed out, of course. I did want to add that I can say with a clear conscience that we were at our maximum bearishness in March of 2000, and at our maximum all-time bullishness in March of 2009. And a very interesting question is, does that make it a viable business strategy? I'm not so certain <laughs> because being a contrarian, as Keynes pointed out in his famous chapter 12 of the general theory, it's a hair-raising business because if you're right on your own, he would argue that the committee pats you on the head while you're in the room and then describes you as you leave the room as a dangerous eccentric. And if you're wrong on your own, they shoot you. That's it, out of hand, bang. Whereas if you're wrong together, Nobody gets shot. You go off the cliff together, endless banks doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And maybe they find a complete idiot who's been actually cheating a bit and they shoot him. But basically, there's huge comfort from company in terms of career risk. And that's why you never hear a good bear case from Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or whatever. You may hear it from one individual once in a blue moon, but you don't hear it from the enterprise in total. Because it's lousy business. They're not in the business of engaging in lousy business. So since you can never get the timing perfectly, otherwise whoever could would own half the world's wealth. Since you can't get the timing right, you know in general you're going to be too early, etc. So why not just tout the bull market and say it's cheap, it's cheap, it's wonderful, jump on, jump on. It's hugely good for profits and hugely encouraging of massive IPOs and SPACs, and every SPAC guy races around the countryside for six months and takes 20% for himself. And, you know, it's a wonderful way of making a paper wealth. And then it blows up. Fine, you take a hit, but then you start the game again. And bear markets tend to be pretty short. And once they get going anyway, you can make good money. And then you get another drawn out five or 10 year bull market. That's the way to make money. They know that very well. They've been through cycles and they're never going to fight a bubble. They never did. They never will. It doesn't matter if it's Japan and it goes to 65 times earnings. The big warehouses in Japan were not saying, whoops, we've never been above 25 before, which they hadn't. 
And here we are at 65. This should mean that you're going to have to regress to the mean for the next 30 or 40 years, which they have, incidentally. They're still not anywhere near the high of 89. Just think about that. 31 years later. And real estate prices are worse than that for land. You know, the land under the Empress Palace really was worth the entire state of California, which is great. But the consequence is decades go by to absorb those aberrations. The bigger the aberration, the bigger the ensuing pain. So 2000 was 35 times trading earnings. It had never been above 21. It broke out above 21 at the end of 97. Luckily, we were still perfectly optimistic at 21. With hindsight, I'm not sure why, but we were lucky. But as it moved into terra incognita, you know, 22, 23, we became fairly rapidly more conservative. And it went all the way to 35, which is, of course, brutal. And then it gave it all back. And since we doubled down somewhat, and since there were wonderful places to hide, it was easy to make a lot of money. And we made a lot more than we, than we gave up. But it's fairly brutal as you find a bubble. And we kind of learned that being three years too early is a little painful in Japan. And so we were only two years too early <laughs> in 2000. And that was brutal. And we lost tons and tons of business. And by the way, let me just make the point that 2000 was mainly an institutional bubble. 29 was institutional and everybody else, individual, the kitchen sink, everyone was in 1929. 2000, the individuals were not, they were optimistic and they played the game a bit, but it wasn't a real individual frenzy. It was an institutional frenzy. That's what was so heartbreaking for an institutional manager like us. Every committee that I can think of, every committee had a lot of members who bought into the new golden era of Alan Greenspan. They really thought productivity is going to be higher forever and the market should be 35 times earnings or 30 times earnings. All complete nonsense, of course, but they believed it. And the housing bubble was, uh, was different. Individuals at the top end of the wealth distribution, kind of wealthy individuals played the housing market and one tended to know people who'd bought a house or two on speculation for renting. The stock market wasn't that bad in comparison, but it wasn't an individual frenzy in the stock market. This one is. This is a 1929, like the mini bubble I described of 68, 69. Nothing to do with institutions, really. That was a little individual bubble, and we all lost our shirts. Everyone lost their shirt in 29. The institutions lost their shirt in 2000. This isn't as much an institutional bubble as it is an individual bubble. So the individuals are going utterly crazy and institutions are picking some of it up and they've become much more than averagely optimistic. The flavor of this one is very old-fashioned individual frenzy. Jeremy, talk to me a little bit about, you know, you have personally been involved with your foundation for over 20 years and the allocation there is what I'd call a bit more atypical than your average investor or institution. And in a way, having for a lot of people listening to this conversation, it's really the flip side. It's like the most optimistic view of the world, at least of potential innovation and disruption and creativity and hopefully capitalism. Can you talk to us a little bit about your approach to funding venture capital and the focuses uh, in areas that are thematic there? Yeah, this is full of irony too. Because we decided on a very long-term argument that venture capital was the place to be. It is the highest returning asset class in the long run. And it should be as you go up the risk profile. Obviously, early stage VC has the highest failure rate. And on average, it should have the highest return. And it does. 
And that's a, a pretty decent argument for doing a lot of it anyway. But I had my own argument that was quite separate from that. And that is, I've become increasingly disillusioned with the kind of general effect of U.S. capitalism. I describe it as fat and happy. It isn't as aggressive as it used to be. Now, I grant you, there are a handful of dynamite aggressive companies. But when you think about it, these are all the product of the last few decades of venture capital. These are not the Coca-Colas and the IBMs who were around in 1929, of which there are quite a small army. These are 20-year-old, 40-year-old. You know, when we were starting GMO, we hired away from Microsoft, employee number 25. <laughs> that, that's how relatively young they are. And Apple, the same age, approximately. And the rest, you know, are 20 years old. You know, it's practically the other day that uh, Bezos was taking his drive over from New York to Seattle and becoming the richest man in the world for, for a long while. And so on. And you could argue Tesla, you know, it's just a few years from making his first car. So that's all kind of venture capital-ish, isn't it? The facts, they feel like venture capital. The point is, the US has, in my opinion, a lot of problems. Uh, Americans love to think of themselves as exceptional. It's a long tradition. And, you know, for a big chunk of American history, it was absolutely true. After World War II, you name it, America was it. You know, it was exceptional. But the last 30 years maybe even a bit more, have not been that great. And America has been sliding down the ranks of almost everything that matters. You, know, you could start math skills, verbal skills. And we've gone steadily from number seven to number 25. You could say, well, number 25 isn't bad, but, but it's a long, slow slide. Life expectancy, we're the worst in the developed world in the last four years on average have gone backwards. Morbidity, you know, just how sick we are as a society. And we have the sickest developed country society. And we spend six points more than any other country of GDP on health. Uh, we have more people in prison by a factor, you know, four or five times the others and 10 or 20 times Japan and children to 16-year-olds, you name it. Inequality, the Gini index, it's the worst. Not one of the worst. We're absolutely the worst of the 25 or so uh, developed countries. So, it's all very depressing. And I have a stump speech I used to give on this topic because the typical well-informed Bostonian businessman really thinks that we're the best at everything. And, you know, I'd have a series of little slides and it would start with a proposition. And the opening salvo was a quote from Mark Twain. It, it ain't what you, you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And each of these propositions would say, you know, kicking French bottoms. And we've been kicking French bottoms if you read Business Week for the 50 years I've been in America. So how come since 1975, the average hour paid to a worker, inflation adjusted, is up 160% in France, is up less than 10% in the US, and the poor old Brits are up 60 or 70. So for the average worker, this has just been a diabolically bad time, et cetera, et cetera. How about, you know, I wish America wouldn't be so generous to foreign countries, particularly when times are bad. That's the proposition. And then click. It shows that the developed world gives away about 0.4 to 1% if you're a goody-goody like Sweden. And then the final click is the US, 0.2 for the last 40 or 50 years, dead last, right across the board. And the amazing thing here is not that we're dead last. It's that everyone in the room thinks we're one of the best. And they're wishing we wouldn't be so generous when we're the cheapest developed country by far. No. Trust me, all of these facts are triple-checked. So 
Finally, I make it to BC and I say, now that's what I call exceptional. America is the dominant VC player by far. It's huge in scale. It's huge in competence. It has armies of good teams. And better than that, if you say, where does the brightest and best go today? They don't go to management consulting. They don't go to marketing for Procter & Gamble as they did in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. They don't go to Goldman Sachs to write fancy trading models as they did in the 90s and even into the 2000s. They go into startups and venture capital, either picking venture capital or running the venture capital firms. Anyway, they are the driving force, the last super vital part, I believe, of American capitalism. So that combination with the fact it has the highest return, provably the highest equity return, with the fact that it's so dynamic and kind of dominant on a global basis, left me saying over 10 years ago, why the hell shouldn't we put virtually all the money we can into professional VC portfolio? And then as I became a green fanatic, we said, well, why don't we build our own team and put 20% of the money into green VC, which we'll do ourselves because there isn't much of an infrastructure yet. There's one becoming now, but there wasn't then. And so that's what we did. And we had the 80% measured separately and our 20%. So we had no conflict of interest. And we had a very good consulting firm, Cambridge Associates, lived up the road and I'd worked with for years and years and years. And we had some of the best people there, if not the best people. And we said to them, put as much money basically as you can steadily into the best VC players. And they did, starting a dozen years ago. We started very small and, and now we're about 60% VC. And it's done 18, 19% a year compound. And so it's been great, much better than the balance of the portfolio, I might add. And then our 20% has been interesting because we were in the early stages of green investing before our relationship started with Cambridge. And we were doing the same disastrous early stage <laughs> green investments that Kleiner Perkins and Kleinod Kersler and everybody, we were all getting sandbagged by early stage green because they weren't competitive enough. And we thought the government would get behind it and it didn't. So we were disappointed. But the second wave for the last 10 years has been very interesting. And it was the last of our early big investments that was in QuantumScape. So that with any luck, is going to make up for all of the disappointments. If it can hold its current price over 40, that is, it will leave us in splendid shape. It will also make us a total of 80% in VC and closely related investments, which of course is ludicrous by any other standard and no one does it. And one of the reasons they don't do it is being revealed. And that is, it takes away all your flexibility to jump in and out of the market that a market uh, specialist like myself might aim for. And so I can treat my children's accounts and I can make them very defensive now, but I can't do that with the foundation. Loosely speaking, my own money, we've put everything, it's either in or committed to a foundation for the protection of the environment and a public trust for the same thing. And uh, we always keep some in my name because if it's very risky, we feel it's not politically correct to put it into the foundation. So I do it. And then if it succeeds, we give it to the foundation. And if it fails, I take a, a tax write-off with some benefit. And so that's very efficient and has worked out extremely well. And I, I recommend it. Anyway, to get back to the story, so we have this astonishing 80% VC portfolio, which is doing very well on the professional side and 
subject to QuantumScape pretty well on the formerly amateur side. We're getting a little more professional now, a lot more professional. But we've had to give up the ability to jump in and out because VC, you make a commitment for 10 years forward and they can call the money when it's inconvenient to you. And you don't know when they'll sell them at a profit and flow it back. So you have to allow quite a large safety factor and you can't do things like have a big short portfolio because a big short portfolio gets marked to market. And where do you find that money if you're wrong? So we have a very modest short portfolio. So we have one of the most aggressive portfolios in the philanthropic world, if not the single most aggressive, because we have 80% in VC and a short position of 12%. (laughs) Anyway, so that makes for an interesting story. And the moral here is you can play a long-term argument, or you can play a short-term argument, but you can't play both. You hit on two things I think are extremely important. We've been talking a lot about sort of startup investing for the past five years on this show. And something that I think most really considered to be a bug is actually a feature. And this cycle in the last few years and months and weeks, I think illustrate that, which is the, you can't sell something. At the end of the day with stocks, what you want is investments in great growing cash flowing businesses, hopefully at good prices and investing in a lot of these startups. Like you mentioned, you don't get to choose. <laughs> you could be in there for five, 10 years, maybe more. But that's a good thing because how many of us would sell out if something doubles or if something is going nowhere only to do well? And then the secondary, because you're usually starting from lower valuations, the power laws, which apply to public markets too, of course, but are even more extreme in private markets, really have a chance to really play themselves out. So I think it's an amazing combo. And you combine that on an individual level with some of the QSBS rules and everything else. And we tell investors, say, look, even if you're 20 and you got no money, go sign up for AngelList, Republic, review all the deals. Worst case scenario, you get to see thousands of innovative, amazing companies. Hey, you could go work for one. Best case scenario, you could start to invest in some and hopefully have a life-changing event and portfolio that five, 10 years from now ends up being lots of wonderful companies, hopefully some public, maybe not necessarily through a SPAC, but <laughs> it's public one way or the other. You know, let me just say, I, I think that's wonderful, a wonderful idea. And I should also add that Boston has been a great place. San Francisco would also do very nicely, but Boston has been great. We have more new enterprises than you do. It's just that the dollar volume of, of some of your kind of social app outweighs us, which tend to be a little bit more diversified and engineering and so on. Actually, we make things in a lot of our VC companies. But it's been unbelievably exciting to meet with these entrepreneurs and scientists, sometimes both in the same person. And the degree of technology, the promise and some of these new ideas is just remarkable. We have an investment in a company that can produce messenger RNA that is used for the two leading vaccines, for example. It's a great research medium and has huge potential. It had a bit of a problem, though. It was $1,000 a gram to produce. And our guys, I say stumbled. I mean, they're very, very clever. But in the end, the great breakthroughs need a bit of luck. They stumbled on a way of making it for $0.35 a gram instead of $1,000. I mean, holy cow. And there's another one that takes nitrogen out of the air, a microbe and fixes it in the ground, as a clover does, or some nitrogen-fixing trees. But it replaces the need for nitrogen fertilizer. Half of the world's population is kept alive 
by nitrogen fertilizer, which comes from the Haber-Bosch process developed in World War I from munitions. And it's an enormous chewer up of energy. And if we can get this bacteria to do its thing, it does use energy, but it uses a tiny fraction of the Haber-Bosch and would be therefore huge for the environment. Then we have another one that develops a bio-modified insecticides. This one, and it only addresses, it's RNA derived, it only addresses the Colorado potato beetle. Not even a cousin beetle is affected. And you put a a gram in a gallon and you put a gallon over an acre, it, it goes a long way. And it tells the Colorado beetle that it can't digest carbohydrates. So it eats the potato and dies of starvation and drops to the floor of the field and is cheerfully eaten by the other insects without ill effect. It's totally non-toxic. I mean, these kinds of things can change the world. I 100% agree with you. And I'm consistently surprised every morning when I read some of these companies on occasions just stop me in my tracks and say, oh my God, that's brilliant. I think a lot of people that would be critics say, hey, all these startups are just trying to optimize the way Google's selling ads. But as you just heard, there's world-changing science going on. And it creates an optimist to balance out the public market pessimism. Jeremy, you know, as a good analyst and some of a student of history, is there any part of you that thinks that this massive amount of innovation, and I know VC is still small in the scheme of things. Let me just interrupt there for a second. If you look at the fangs, They are not small by any definition. They are huge, dominating global presences, kind of instant monopolies. They are really all spin-outs from earlier generations of VC. If you had, for example, a buy-and-hold VC, instead of just routinely selling them every time they go public, and you'd done it for 50 years, just think of the returns. You own all of the Apples and Amazons. You know, in the entire dominant part of the S&P back then, in the IBMs and the Mercks and the Lillies and the Cokes, and also the GEs and people who haven't done that well, in comparison, much, much less. So I think we underestimate VC because we don't realize how a handful of winners quickly turn into massive market cap. You know, speaking to that, I had a friend do a study that he was trying to do for a while, and I could get this slightly wrong, but I'll post it in the show notes, listeners. But he basically said, if you could go back, even during the bubble of the late 90s and purchase the entire class of IPOs, despite the fact that most of them just did a dirt nap to zero and and lost all their money because of what you just illustrated, some of the massive winners, you ended up usually having a, a pretty great performance over the full period. We'll add the link to the show notes, listeners. I could be getting that wrong, but I think it's directionally correct because of what you mentioned, what an old friend wrote about called the capitalism distribution, where you have academic paper that talks about, you know, it's the five or 10% of stocks that deliver all the return of the stock market over time. And maybe the one or 2%. You either have to do a really good job of annual turnover of bargains, of cheap stocks for what you get, or you're in the business of trying to pick the winners and hold them forever. And I do think they're both, they're both viable strategies. And some people have a talent for picking stocks that may really have something by the tail, a Tesla. I'm not recommending Tesla, by the way, but some people have a talent for sniffing them out. And some people have a talent for working the portfolio hard and 
you know, whipping it and moving it around and buying the bargains. And when they go up, selling them too soon, if you will, and buying something much cheaper and rotating around, which worked brilliantly for 100 years when the growth managers were hiding under the table, basically, for most of that 100 years. And then for 20 years, the growth managers have done brilliantly and the value managers are hiding under the table. But I think those are the two viable ways of making money. Yeah. Jeremy, when you look back on your career, what's been the most memorable investment? Good, bad, in between? Anything come to mind? Well, I've got to say, back in the midst of time, American Raceways, I told you that story. And now, QuantumScape. Because I can titillate you by saying that for a second there, my holding of QuantumScape was $625 million worth. I mean, give me a break. I mean, that is enough to concentrate anyone's brain other than the 30 real fat cats out there whose wealth is measured in tens of billions. And sorry, scores of billions would be a better description these days. And anyway, so that leaves me with some interesting feelings that I've lost more money in the last five weeks on paper, because I'm not allowed to sell, so it's all irrelevant. But I've lost more money on that one issue than I made in the first 50 years of my business life. <laughs> first 40 years anyway. So QuantumScape is going to go down one way or the other engraved on my, the back of my head. We're all cheering for you. I'll give you a fingers crossed in the next few months and hopefully- And, yeah, and we hope. can really use the money. Everything goes <laughs> yeah. into, into the struggle for greening the economy and saving our bacon. And, and uh, we could really use every penny we can get our hands on. Jeremy, I know addressing climate change is something you're passionate about, so I'd love to get your thoughts on it before we go. It is so critical that I would feel ashamed to have kind of left without making at least the bare point. The point is that we are not winning this, what we call the race of our lives. The amount of carbon dioxide extra in the air uh, last year was the highest ever increment. And we don't start winning till A, that gets to zero. And then we have to backtrack. and We have to find a way of pulling it out of the air to take it over the following several decades back down to 280 parts per million. We're currently at 415 and we're surely heading for 550, 600, and I hope not 700, 750, but something like that. And we're going to have to uh, take it out of the air by direct air capture or by biological means, by planting trees and by growing seaweed and doing many exotic things and hopefully getting paid a carbon credit for doing it and hopefully having technological breakthroughs so that the credit we need is, is only $25 a ton and not $250 a ton, because we can afford $25 a ton to get the job done. But we are going to have a lot of pain from the damage we've done to the environment, mainly in terms of greenhouse gases. And it's going to be very expensive and very difficult and highly probably a big chunk of the world, something like 15%, will basically become uninhabitable that currently is habitable, which is a lot of it is the kind of Saudi peninsula and parts of the Sahara and so on, sub-Sahara, which are bad enough. But the really bad news is that it's most of the Indian subcontinent, which will in 50 years when the really bad news occurs, will have 2 billion people on it. And a big chunk of the world's population, which will probably be about nine by then. And then parts of Indonesia, they're just unlivable that the combination of humidity and heat will mean you can't go out and do your farming. And how much that will stress out the rest of the Indian subcontinent, where they still can function, I don't know, but it won't be pleasant. And Africa is already being stressed, has the worst soil and the worst governance and so on. And 
climate change is hurting that. So we have to change our farming all over the world to make it more sustainable. And better than that, we have to regenerate the quality of the soils, which we can do, but it takes complete changing of the practices. And you've got a vested interest that's making a lot of money selling pesticides and so on and fertilizer and doesn't want to change and has a lot of influence with the agencies and a lot of power in American government, courtesy of the laws of the land that enable you to spend as much money as you want influencing politics, which is a crazy way to run a ship. And we're going to have a lot of pain. And what we're racing for is these new technologies that will allow us to keep the pain to bearable levels. It's a huge payoff and every day counts and everybody's help is needed. But I don't think we're going to do it on the strength of our good common sense. I think we've proven in COVID and climate change that's extremely limited. We're going to have to do it because we're blessed with a plentiful supply of brilliant new technologies. And we're going to have to make damn sure we don't waste them, that we develop them as quickly as we can, as effectively as we can. We make the money available for research and development, which corporations are so stuffy they've basically stopped doing. They'd much prefer to buy a VC company, the one out of five or 10 that has proven itself rather than take the risk themselves. It costs them money, but it smooths out their income stream. And when they buy a VC company, it's a capital transaction. When they do it themselves, it's that deplorable kind of ebb and flow of income, which comes with career risk, so they don't do it. So we need R&D money from the government. We need good policies from the government to encourage it. Some of the new industries need to be jump-started the way they always have been so profitably. Tesla was a big recipient of some government money, and it can make all the difference in the world. And some great VC successes can make a huge difference. So it's absolutely critical that we get into full-court press, greening, greening the global economy. What's the big muscle movement? So you've been doing this for 20 years. And is it a scenario where you're like, look, we got to try a thousand different approaches, everything helps? Or is there one or two specific areas that you think, you know, say, hey, if we could do like a Manhattan Project, focus on these specific areas, this could have the most impact? Is it that black and white? Yeah, I don't know. Of course, how do I know? But it might be. And, you know, our temptation is to think we should only invest in things that can change the game. So I think fusion will work. And I say, I think it will. I think the odds are better than 50% that one of the two or three dozen new second generation fusion will work or that the giant billion dollar sucking (laughs) ITER, I-T-E-R enterprises and so on that many countries have backed that will work one or the other will eventually come through. And it may take a few decades and 30 years is a lot better than 70 years. And eventually we will have lots of cheap green energy. And we'll either have it because we have a battery storage to go with wind and solar, which is already heroically competitive and will guarantee to fall in price. We'll either have it down that route or quite possibly we'll have it from a new generation of nuclear fission, they'll finally get their act together after 70 years of messing up, or a breakthrough in fusion. You add them all together, it seems absolutely certain we'll have plenty of cheap energy. And we will green cement and steel and shipping and aviation and everything else, the difficult ones. The problem is time. We're going to do all this, but are we going to do it in 40 years or 100 years? In 100 years, we're going to pay an incredible price and destabilize perhaps the global civilization that we have learned to live with. 
and ruin a lot more of the planet from an ecological point of view and drive a few million creatures out of business. Or we're going to do it quickly and save a lot of that pain. And that's the game we're playing now. And who knows how it will work out. I just think it's going to be a rather closely run affair and that our hold on on the stable future is not a, a very strong one at the moment. You know, I was listening to a podcast with Nathan Mirvold, the old CTO of Microsoft, who now does all sorts of things like dig up dinosaur bones. And he's wrote a book on cooking pizza, but also has designed a bunch of reactors and it was small scale. And it was so frustrating to listen to because you get so many governments involved and basically can just kind of put the kibosh on projects like that at will. And so many PR sort of powers between countries and everything else. And it gets frustrating. But the engineer in me and the investor is hopeful that a lot of these early stage, I've seen some really absolutely crazy ideas come across my plate, which makes me even more optimistic because often those end up working out, <laughs> working out too. So yeah. who knows? Isn't that, isn't that the truth? I got to tell you a story about the Manhattan Project which is a perfect example of people think government can't do anything. Listen, guys, if government couldn't do anything, we would not have won World War II. America went from producing cars to producing tanks and jeeps and destroyers pretty damn effectively. And it was all done at the top. It was all planned. It was Galbraith, the economist, was minister of this and that. You know, It was done by an heroic effort. But the Manhattan Project is unique because I knew a a fellow who was on an investment committee of, of a, a mutual fund that we ran. And we used to meet them four times a year. And this obstreperous committee of scientists and so on used to grill us. And eventually I discovered that one of them had won the Nobel Prize. I'd met him through the fund for work he'd done decades before I even met him. So he got the prize after uh, six or seven years of working together for work he'd done decades earlier. He's been taken out of Harvard as an undergraduate physicist, and he'd been stuck in the desert as a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old, working side by side with the Italian Nobel Prize winners and things. What an amazing demonstration of out-of-the-box thinking and risk-taking that was going on in the Manhattan Project. I had no idea. And to prove how good it was, he did indeed get a Nobel Prize himself, you know, 50 years later for work he'd done 30 years later. The Manhattan Project took a job that would have taken 15 years easily, and they crammed it into three and a half years by dint of money and brilliance and gathering these people together and using any talent they could get their hands on, like this kid. And if we could do half as well, we would be in great shape. We would definitely make the cut. And the fact is the governments can do it if they get their brains together, if they get their act together. The race of our lives will be decided by the difference between what humans are capable of doing and what we will actually do. We can win this race and along the way, get rid of poverty and so on, if we put our best foot forward. But given half a chance, we mess it up. And that's what I say. Never, never underestimate the power and creativity of the homo sapiens and never underestimate his ability to foul it all up. How much of the story is outside the U.S., by the way? Is this something that's hard to coordinate amongst countries, but also the scientists and engineers and the 19-year-old may very well be from India or Africa or China or Canada? 
I have great confidence that the real breakthroughs that the U.S. will play a hell of a role. And by the way, the great research universities are the other true exceptional feature in the U.S., which is closely correlated with the success of the VC industry, of course. I mean, the U.S. has a death grip on the great research universities and those that we don't have, the UK is well positioned too. And then, of course, as always, increasingly China. But no, China is a monster, of course, in the future, in everything. And we've documented how it changed the world by going from you know 5% of cement use to 50% in a 25-year window. I mean, the growth rates of a type that the world has never seen and on a scale that we have never seen. And on the green front, they are moving like a rocket ship. Everyone says, oh, they do this pollution stuff. And I say, kind of get a grip. Of course, they're trying to grow as fast as they can. They had to catapult the biggest country in the world into the haves from the have-nots. And they have done it. They are now in the have list of countries, not the have-nots, dealing with a perhaps difficult future. But when you break it down, they have 80% of the world's production of solar panels. They have up and running 400,000 electric buses. And the US a year ago had 400. It's more like 1,000 now. But by now, China's kind of moving towards 500,000. The other day, they sold 1,500 to Bogota, the capital of Colombia, 1,500 electric buses. And the battery efficiency of that is higher even than Tesla in power to weight ratio. And they put in more wind Actually, they put in 75% as much wind last year as America has put in in 40 years, cumulatively. And we are allowing the Chinese to completely dominate the future industries. They sell more electric cars than the rest of the world added together. And of course, Tesla is out there cranking out cars already in China. They have more fast trains than the rest of the world added together. And we have none. What the hell is going on? So, yeah, we have lots of technology, but they have a battle plan and a determination to grind forward. And you may completely deplore their politics and who doesn't. But in terms of the green reality, as opposed to the myth, they are driving the system. They are driving a lot of the costs down for solar and for electric buses and for electric cars and for batteries and so on and so forth. They are a vital role. So I don't care if they build it on the back of our technology. The stakes are too high here to be too picky and choosy. I don't mind if the Chinese are the ones who get a lot of the benefits either. But it's a pity that we would not participate more and that we would not be a player in these markets. These markets will be the most important industries and new markets and growth rate of the next many decades we will have to spend trillions of dollars completely reconfiguring, decarbonizing our future, and uh, it will dominate our portfolios. Why would we not want to be one of the first pushing on every industry quicker and better? And we have the odd Tesla, but basically most of the chips here are in Chinese hands, and we should be nervous about that. Well, nothing helps spur innovation like a little competition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like a good thing. Yeah. It's been a blast. People want to follow you. Is GMO the best place to go? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't advanced any further than that. But <laughs> we have some good papers on our website. I have one on resource limitations called Time to Wake Up, which is probably the best paper we ever did. And we have a couple 
called Race of Our Lives 1 and Race of Our Lives 2, which covers everything with a lot of exhibits and a lot of data. And we have a decent paper on toxicity, which is hugely under-recognized as a problem and how to deal with it. And then, of course, we have a recent paper on the bubble. <laughs> you know, Jeremy, just to wrap a bow on this conversation with the weirdest possible ending, I've invested in over 200 startups. This week invested in, when you talk about the toxicity, was the largest sperm at-home analysis clinic that's now at home versus going into a clinic startup is one, again, one of the most obvious ideas that I think is probably has a lot of potential. I, I, I tell you what, will you do me a favor and send me the data? I, I will. It's an obvious one, but also one that has a huge pharma angle as uh, once you build that database and have all the information, you can, uh, you can start to do things like cancer okay. screening and on and off. We'll take that offline. Jeremy Grantham, thanks yeah. so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. What's up, my friends? We have a killer show for you today. Our guest is the founder and chief investment officer of Artemis Capital Management, which aims to transform market volatility into opportunities for clients. In today's episode, our guest shares why recency bias has led investors to be poorly positioned for secular change. We cover the issues with the traditional 60-40 portfolio and then walk through the five asset classes and strategies our guest believes belong in your portfolio at all times. We cover one of my favorite research pieces of the past few years, a paper our guests authored prior to the pandemic. We see how it did during the pandemic, as well as talk about the optimal portfolio to help you grow and protect your wealth for the next 100 years. Then our guest shares how investors should think about diversification and talks about his new metric to help them do so. And of course, we talk about volatility. Be sure to check out the show notes to see some slides our guests specifically put together for today's show. Please enjoy this episode with Artemis Capital Management's Chris Cole. Chris, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. It's been too long, so it's really great to be back on your show. It has been, man. Last time, listeners, we had you on Go Take It for a Spin, episode 134 at the end of 2018. Where do we find you? You still in Austin? Still in Austin, Texas, right behind us. Every time I look out this window, it seems like another skyscraper comes on up. I need to make it to Austin along with the rest of the Californians. I think you're probably between you guys and Miami just getting the deluge of VCs and everyone else into town. But to come visit. What is the best two months to come to Austin? I think in the spring or the fall. <laughs> but please, you're, you're welcome to come anytime in the summer you want. I would not recommend it <laughs> given the heat. So like April, May, September, October? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Or in the, even the wintertime is quite nice, actually. All right, listeners, I'll book a trip. We'll definitely do a meetup if that sort of thing is happening in this day and age. And Chris said before the show, he'll pay for all the beers and snacks. So you heard it here first. All right, man. Well, last two years, not much has gone on, right? Just been kind of smooth sailing in markets and everything else. <laughs> last time we were talking about volatility, which no one really seemed to care about and tail events and long vol. And then sure enough, my goodness, we turned the page on a decade and wham, what's been going on? Walk us through kind of the last couple of years in Artemis and Cole, Cole's world. What's been amazing is I, I like to say this, the last 12 months or 2020 was essentially an entire business cycle condensed into one year. I mean, boy, obviously we know about the March crisis, the COVID crisis, which really started before March because you had the big sell-off in markets. 
the reflation in equity markets, the fiat devaluation. And now we're kind of in a stagflation. I mean, today with the inflation print that is at the highest level since 2007, fascinating. But Artemis has been doing great. We've been expanding our firm out here in Austin, Texas. We've held true to our legacy long ball roots. Good. Let's dig into that. Last time we talked, you had so many great nuggets, quotable pieces, volatility being the only asset class. And then fast forward, you arguably wrote my favorite piece. That was 2019. I remember sitting down at my local coffee shop, Phil's, and printing out, I killed like six trees. Your piece and Raoul Powell had a piece out too and had intended to be there for like 30 minutes and ended up being there for like two hours. But listeners, if we don't get deep into Dragon or parts of this, we can do that. But then you put out another one, which probably was even more encompassing called the 100-year portfolio. You want to give us an overview? First of all, I, I really love Raoul's piece as well. I sat down pre-COVID and, and devoured that one as well. The paper I wrote over a year ago, the Allegory of the Hawk and Serpent, that introduced the concept of this Dragon portfolio, and that's the nickname that we use for it. I really wanted to look at and say, okay, the last 40 years has been this highly unusual period of time. It's actually been one of the most incredible periods of growth for bonds and stocks. Uh, in fact, this is amazing stat. 91% of the performance of a stock bond portfolio over the last 100 years has come from just the period between 1982 and 2007. Everyone that we know, every financial advisor, every person who has experience in markets has existed in this highly unique cycle that truly is unique if you look at any range of history, of financial history, where stocks and bonds have been going up together at an incredible pace. I mean, that obviously has been spurred on by numerous factors, this kind of pro-reflexive virtuous cycle between lower interest rates, which peaked 17% in the early 80s that have dropped all the way down to zero, demographic boom with baby boomers coming into the workforce, lower taxation, deregulation, globalization, all these things have been very helpful for asset prices, both stocks and bonds. But now we've reached the end of that. And it's important to understand exactly how anomalous that is. And in this paper, we actually show some graphs that I think are just quite shocking to anyone who has an opportunity to look at them. I pose this question to myself. If you had to have a portfolio, and you could rebalance it, but you had to have a portfolio for the next 100 years, and your children's children depended on this portfolio, what portfolio, what collection of strategies and assets would you want to employ? I started quite honestly with this question. And to figure out an answer, what I did is I immediately said, okay, the most of the back-tested history we have for all these quant strategies, they really start, if you're lucky in the 80s, most of it starts in the 90s or later. So, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to back-test every conceivable financial engineering strategy, portfolio strategy, and even option strategies. I can get into that a little bit because the options market didn't really exist prior to the 1980s. Using justifiable metrics and assumptions, back-test this using data from the global financial database. And look, how did risk parity perform in the 30s and 70s? How would a rolling call overwriting strategy perform? How would a rolling put strategy perform? How does a 60-40 portfolio perform? And I looked at this with the intention of actually finding the optimal mix of assets that can perform through every market cycle. And that's how I came to this determination of this unique portfolio, which we called the Dragon Portfolio. And the reason why I, I love these allegories, the paper was called The Allegory of the Hawk and Serpent because... A serpent represents this pro-cyclical growth phase. That's kind of what we've been through the last 40 years, where stocks and bonds do very well in a, an accumulation of debt. A hawk represents a period of secular change. And that change is where debt is wiped out, either through stagflation, 
or deflation. Well, a dragon is a combination between a hawk and a serpent. That's a dragon. And what I mean by that is it's a strategy and a framework that performs through every market cycle. Obviously, we can get into that a little bit more, but I wrote the paper prior to the COVID crisis, and the COVID crisis actually was this incredible testing ground for the theory. It's like the most immediate out-of-sample test ever. (laughs) It's like, here you go, boom, 2020. I love your pieces, not just because the graphics and drawings. You have some of the best subject line titles for the various paragraphs. I was smiling and said, to thrive, we must embody the cosmic duality between the hawk and the serpent. Every time I read this paper or think about it, the East Coast rock, I guess this is everywhere now, Blues Traveler had a song called 100 Years, and it reminds me of this. Although their main verse from that was, it won't mean a thing in 100 years because we'll all be dead, but surviving for our kids and future children. You know, it's funny you mentioned that part about the environment we grew up in, because it's such a massively imprinting factor on how we all view the world. And it's only natural. Like you go, you talk to our parents' generation about how to invest. My mom, you buy stocks and you hold them forever. My grandparents' generation talked about a totally different mindset, which was children of the depression, living through a totally different environment And there's a great book and I'm blanking on it. It's something like The Diary of the Depression or something along those lines that is talking about it through the lens of a journal in real time. And my God, what a different world and conclusions you would come to than someone who lived in this post-war period. Anyway, keep telling the story. Walk us through the paper and the takeaways. Well, I'm so glad you bring up that concept, actually, because it's so powerful to actually go back and read these old... I have a Barron's description. One of the things I love about Barron's They just hit a 100-year anniversary this past week. There you go. It's incredibly informative, for example, to go read all of their headline articles from the 1990s. It's incredible to put yourself in that mindset. You go back to the mindset of somebody who, first of all, the average financial advisor is about 55 years old. They were a kindergartner last time we had debilitating stagflation. All we have known in our entire lives is a regime where stocks, you buy on dips on stocks, stocks go up. And anytime they don't go up, the Fed intervenes, cuts rates, does QE. And that has resulted in this incredible kind of buy the dip regime. Well, one of the things I tested is I actually looked at a buy the dip strategy going back 100 years. You went bankrupt three times employing that strategy in a kind of systematic way. It's actually incredible to say, oh my goodness, why is that? Well, for the greater part of most of 70 years, stocks were autocorrelated. What that means is that if yesterday was up, today's likely to be up. And if yesterday was down, today's likely to be down again. That ended during the Nixon shock, where they actually had devaluation against gold. And then at that point, stocks went from being trend-based to kind of mean reverting-based until it re- mean reversion reached all-time highs last year. Truly incredible. So, you know, the question at the end of the day, I mean, if, if history repeats, okay, you know, the 60-40 portfolio, fine. But It's very difficult to sit back and say with rates where they are, stocks where they are, and valuations where they are, could we get a repeat of where corporate debt to GDP is at all-time highs? U.S. government deficits to GDP are at the highest level since World War II. Can we expect the next 40 years to repeat? So based on this, I like to say that recency bias is a systemic risk. The expectation that the next 40 years will look like the last 40 years is actually a systemic risk to pension solvency and retirement solvency. And that if people think that they can apply the formula that worked yesterday, 
over the next 20 years or for their retirement, they're going to be sorely mistaken. I think a deep study of 100 years of history shows us that. Right now, everyone's racing to buy real estate. You talked about this dynamic, the Great Depression, the stagflation. Everyone's racing to buy real estate. Everyone's racing to buy stocks. Everyone's racing to buy crypto tokens. Well, think of the context of a GI coming back from World War II in the mid-1940s. Now, the mid-1940s was one of the best times to possibly invest in blue chip stocks and in homes. You had all these GIs coming back, huge baby boom, huge growth. U.S. is the manufacturing center of the world. It was a great time. Well, try convincing that to a GI who has a little bit of savings. And that GI is going to look at you and said, who's probably about 25, 30 years old, is going to say, my God, the last 20 years, I have seen my family lose their home, lose their stocks. Stocks and real estate were down for close to two decades so that GI knew nothing except that those were a casino. It would be highly difficult for that GI to put his money in anything than cash and most conservative investments. Well, same thing with the early 80s. Bonds were considered certificates of confiscation. So when inflation has exploded and you're looking at 14 to 16% treasury yields and mortgages are close to 25% as they were back in the late 70s, early 80s, try walking into a boardroom and saying, hey, not only should we buy fixed income, we should lever it. It's funny because we did this trading simulation years ago when I was an analyst, when I was coming into the analyst training program. They started out and gave us all, it was like this fast trading simulator. You're supposed to trade it and pretend to be a trader, which is kind of an absurd exercise. And it would go through 20 years of market history and you could buy different things. I won and there was like a $500 cash prize. I won the cash prize because I simply, I knew the simulation was starting in 1980. I sat there and put my portfolio in zero coupon, long duration debt, literally walked away to go get coffee, came back at the end of the simulation and had won. It's humorous, right? To this point, recency is a major systemic risk because we just can't use what worked yesterday to inform what might occur tomorrow. And I think today's a great example of that, where we actually simultaneously are seeing declines in stocks and bonds on the inflation curve. It's always a surprise to people, the correlation between stocks and bonds, one, is not really stable. People assume it's just like, hey, stocks go down, bonds are going to save you. But historically, it's been a bit of a coin flip, depending on the environment. The beauty of your paper and everything you're talking about is that the appreciation for history of what has happened, even in this limited amount of time, you call it 200 years of history, 50 years of sort of floating rate currencies, actually not that long. But even within that amount of time, the tiny subset that people extrapolate from is so tiny. And even more so, so much of people we talk to, even just the last 10 years post-financial crisis of things like the U.S., always outperforms the rest of the world, which is not only not true in history, but it's not even <laughs> close to being true and is the exception, not the rule. So systemic risk, and you're walking through, looking back in this in history, keep going. So let's talk a little bit about what I learned and what came out of this process. The first concept at the end of the day is that the way most portfolios are constructed today, this includes the biggest pensions in the world and sovereign wealth funds in the world. And it also includes you know, the average grandmother down the street. They have a portfolio that is mostly 60-40 stocks and bonds. Now, some of the pension systems might get tricky diversifying their portfolio with a bunch of hedge funds that actually, if you look at it, are mostly replicating that beta component of the portfolio 
with some short tails. So I always talk about this idea that most of these strategies are short volatility in the sky, right? They're shorting correlations, they're literally shorting ball, or they're shorting trend in some mean reversionary state. So the average portfolio, a 60-40 portfolio, for example, diversifies based on asset classes. Well, that's silly. Like, what is an asset class? You don't really care about what something is determined an asset class. You care about what its performance is in different regimes. Other portfolios like risk parity, vol targeted, will diversify based on rolling correlations and rolling volatility. Once again, that reflects a recency bias. So what we said is when constructing a portfolio that lasts 100 years, what you want to do is you want to diversify based on how assets perform in different market regimes. And those market regimes are incredibly important. If we look at what that means, well, look at certain strategies that perform in secular growth cycles. That's the experience we've had the last 40 years. Now, that's things like stocks, private equity, all the typical asset classes, you know, value stocks, everything else. Then you want to look at strategies that perform in periods of secular stagnation. So what performs in a period of depression, like a deflationary crisis? Well, strategies like long volatility actually perform very well. If you look at something like the 1930s, volatility realized over 40 for a decade. That's absolutely incredible. So in that sense, some long ball strategies would have carried extremely well and saved your portfolio. Now, fixed income does very well in deflation if you're starting at an already high interest rate point. We saw this in the 1930s. Rates came very down close to zero, and the efficacy of fixed income as a defensive product becomes problematic. You can go to negative rates, but the likelihood of going to negative 3% in a deflationary crisis is very difficult. I mean, you consider that convexity or that nonlinearity you get. Bond yields go down, bond prices go up, and they go up in a nonlinear fashion. That's been the basis. When rates are already at zero, you can't rely on bonds in that deflationary environment. What performs in a stagflationary environment like the 1970s? Well, that's when you want to be in things like commodity or trend following, momentum trend following strategies, particularly in rock commodities. Well, when you put all this together, we found that actually a portfolio of five core asset classes, what we call market regime diversifiers, because they're not assets, they're regime diversifiers is a portfolio that lasts for 100 years and performs consistently through every market cycle. And this portfolio not only performed in every single market cycle, but also was able to do so with about one-fifth to one-sixth the drawdown of a 60-40 portfolio and a risk parity. That is comprised of really five core diversifiers. Assets like equity that performed during secular growth, equity-linked assets like that. And that could include real estate and private equity, anything that's long GDP-based. The second asset class is, of course, fixed income. The third asset class is what we call fiat alternatives, and that's mostly precious metals and gold. You could actually, although we didn't, we can't backtest this, you could actually maybe include a little bit of crypto in there. The fourth asset class is long volatility and convex hedging. And the fifth asset class is trend-following commodities and CTAs. When you put all of those asset classes together in one commingled portfolio, whether you're dealing with secular growth, whether you're dealing with stagflation, whether you're dealing with deflation, your portfolio consistently performs. And the rebalancing of all these different asset classes that diversify based on market regime, that's the key. Diversification by market regime is what creates a steady growth cycle. This is, I think, incredibly important. It challenges, I think, modern portfolio theory in terms of the way it's a simple thing to understand, but it's a very, very powerful idea. And 
the proof is in the pudding. Anyone can look at our paper. Anyone can replicate the back tests we've done in the paper. We provide, it's a very long paper with a very long appendix and quantitative notes. So certainly anyone, please feel free to replicate this. But I think it's a very defensible and realistic framework. And last year, when we saw all of these, all of these factors come into play, we had deflation in the first quarter. Then the Fed came in and global central banks stepped in with $10 trillion worth of stimulus. We had a huge equity boom, which was really a fiat devaluation. And then we had this kind of rise in interest rates and commodity prices in the fourth quarter. That portfolio, those five core asset classes, what we call the dragon portfolio, performed incredibly throughout 2020. The long volatility cushioned your blow from equities and actually resulted in a 13% gain in the first quarter. The rise in gold prices during the summer, along with equities, provided huge gains during that period. And then the latter part of the year, the continuation of the gains from equities and the gains in trend-following commodities actually produced gains in the fourth quarter. So unlike many portfolios, which really stumbled in the first quarter and then struggled to regain, this market regime balanced portfolio consistently made money every single quarter last year to every regime because it's diversified for each of those regimes. So this was not a surprise to us, but I think it was a wonderful out-of-sample test to look at the theory that was presented in the paper. And then we released a new paper this year, which actually kind of looked at that performance. It was a shorter paper, and it reviewed the performance of those core asset classes through the year using actual numbers. Going back to what you mentioned earlier about investors and the 60-40, and even if you have 60-40, the risk, because stock volatility is more than bonds, it ends up looking like essentially an all-stock portfolio. And if you look at even every country in the world, 60-40 loses like two-thirds at some point. So not at all what you would consider in your mind as a low-loss balanced portfolio. And the challenge with that, too, on top of it, is that everyone, that's all U.S. The amount that people allocate to foreign markets is tiny. On average in the U.S., the average allocation of the globe is 80% plus. So in reality, you have this portfolio that's essentially just stocks, stonks as they would call them now, and the problem with that is you have such a massive multi-levered approach with your portfolio and your human capital with what goes on in the real world. The stock market returns are so highly correlated to when shit hits the fan, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, last year is such a recent clear example when the world's going to hell when unemployment goes from 4% to 15, when the economy is going down the tank, yada, yada, on and on and on. Oh, by the way, your portfolio is also getting smashed. I mean, that makes no sense. There's no sense of balance. And financial advisors, it's even worse because your business revenue is tied to the stock market. Clients freak out. They pull their assets. And by the way, if you don't own your own company, you're also subject to getting fired because your company's out. Anyway, on and on and on. It's such an unbalanced portfolio. The beauty of what you have, and it's hard for, I think, a lot of people thinking about true diversification and what that actually means because your three big muscle movements that are missing from other traditional portfolios, people may have 2 3%. I don't hardly ever see more than 5% any of these being the precious metals, kind of gold sleeve, the long vol, and then the trend following sleeves ends up being actually over half the portfolio. Yeah, 20% to each of those sleeves. So that's the thing. There are pension systems out there where you know they've tried to take 5% of their portfolio to gold 
it's very difficult for them to even do that. The concept of this 100-year portfolio is actually quite a radical concept because we're saying, look, put 20% in each of these sub-asset classes or thematic diversification buckets. Now, what's actually a little bit difficult about this is that to do it optimally, the best thing to do is actually to commingle these. And it's actually somewhat hard for people to get diversification in things like commodity trend or long volatility. Artemis has been a long volatility manager, and that's been our bread and butter for a long time. But a lot of times, like people will take those products, and oftentimes for a long vol fund, you might only need 2 to 10% of the capital. So what a lot of smart investors do is they'll commingle that with equities and share the capital. But it's difficult to do that for some retail investors. But to go back to the 60-40 portfolio concept, which, you know, if you look at most pension systems now, it's about 70-20. You know, I always say this is that people think they're diversified, you know, and they might have all these sub-baskets. That diversification actually is short volatility in some capacity and long GDP. If you're investing in a private equity fund, along with your home, along with a average hedge fund, actually, you're just correlated equity beta and correlated to the market cycle. Everything turns down at the same time. Well, what's the central problem with the 60-40 portfolio and also risk parity? Well, the first central problem is it becomes neutered when rates are at the zero bound. So, and that's what happened in the 1930s. We saw it happen last year. If you were relying on fixed income to help you in March, well, there was a period of time where fixed income was actually declining simultaneously with stocks at the same time, which is also what is happening now uh, or happened today at least. That occurs sometimes or the efficacy of fixed income becomes neutered when rates are at the zero bound because you just can't lower rates much more. So although fixed income helped you in the first quarter of 2020, not that much. It also didn't help, if I recall, in most foreign markets where interest rates were already at zero or negative. It actually didn't hedge, I think, most of the foreign bonds, right? Like, So if you're living in Europe or other places, counting on fixed income to hedge the market puke, it didn't. You consider fixed income worked as a wonderful hedge in 08. Well, you were able to take rates from 5% down to zero. Well, Today, we'd have to move deep into negative territory, in Europe even more so, to get that same convexity exposure out of bonds. Big problem. So the second big issue, so bonds at the zero bound don't really work as a diversifier in deflation. I mean, a 60-40 portfolio would have had drawdowns of close to 70 or 80% in the period of the Great Depression. If we go back to a, that same portfolio, and risk parity is actually has the same problem. Risk parity that oftentimes levers the bonds has the exact same problem. If we go to something like the stagflation of the 1970s, which maybe we'll enter into, um, something like that, the 60-40 portfolio had reasonable drawdowns of about 30%. The problem at the end of the day is if you look at that after inflation, it's almost the same as the Great Depression. You had an over 60% drawdown in the classic portfolio after you take into account inflation. So you're getting hit. In the 70s, stocks did nothing and they declined, and there was a big bear market. And when they weren't declining, they were just kind of going sideways. And then you had bonds getting hit by the high inflation. They were getting hammered. And then on top of it, when you have 10% inflation a year, and your bonds are losing money, and your stocks aren't doing anything, you're losing money on a real basis. So in those environments, these classic portfolios just don't work. Now, some people might turn to some of these other strategies, like shorting volatility or risk premium strategies. We tested those too. They're a disaster, truly a disaster. But Chris, every five years, you're telling me that I see this over and over and over again. You get some beautiful looking equity curve and some manager has raised $500 million, a billion dollars, $2 billion, and then they disappear (laughs) at some point. 
oftentimes they're shorting tails in some capacity or leveraging beta. If you look at something like a covered call overwriting strategy, for example, that strategy right after 2008 performed really admirably for a period of time. It looked fantastic. Some individuals actually were able to actually generate a lot of, a lot of AUM off of that. Well, if you go back and you test that strategy through the Great Depression, it was absolutely a disaster because what ended up happening, and this is also true with the 70s as well. It was a disaster in the 70s as well. Because what was happening is, in effect, you had these big declines in markets. So you're taking the brunt of your declines on your linear exposure in the S&P. And then what happened is that there were these periods, much like last year, where when they introduced the Banking Act in 1932, or when Roosevelt devalued versus gold, where the market will explode. Actually, there were two episodes in the 1930s where there were over 60% gains in equity markets in a period of under six months. So you can imagine that if you're doing like a covered call overriding strategy, you're realizing all these losses on the way down. And then you're selling upside. And then when there's that 80% rebound, you're selling that vault. So you're getting hammered on the rebound. What most hedge funds have been doing and what most active strategies have been doing is they've actually been shorting volatility, either implicitly or explicitly. And they're either literally shorting volatility, like selling options for extra income, or they're shorting correlation, which is what risk parity does. They're shorting trend, trend, which is what a lot of strategies do, or we'll call short gamma, or they're shorting interest rates in some component. They're in the expectation that rates drop. Well, in these other environments where you have trending markets, explosive markets on both tails, huge tail exposure, you have breakdowns in correlation between asset classes. And then you have, in some cases, very rapidly rising interest rates or at least a scenario where rates can't drop anymore because they're already close to zero, all of a sudden, all of these different components that people have used in all of these financial engineering strategies to augment and enhance portfolio returns actually fail. That's true for things like, I mean, if you look at it, even something like private equity, for example, where private equity, in essence, requires inexpensive debt and rising markets. That's a secular growth strategy. In many ways, it's actually short a straddle in some components because you're exposed on the left side, in effect, because if there's big declines in growth, you have a negative exposure to that left side of the return distribution. If there are huge gains, but ri rapidly rising inflation becomes really, really difficult to debt finance all of these acquisition targets and you run into the same problems. There's many strategies that actually have they might not seem like they're short vol. They're, in many instances, they have aspects that replicate a short vol trade. The private equity you touch on is near and dear to my heart because you know you chat with a lot of institutions and it's universally seen. I feel like a lot of institutions understand the 60-40 problem and their conclusion is simply to add more stocks through essentially private equity as their savior. And they say, okay, I, I get U.S. 60-40 is going to have low returns. So my savior, my solution is to add more stock through private equity. And you left out one piece, which is that private equity historically had a big valuation discount to the public markets, and that's now gone. And in some cases, it's more expensive than the public market, which is totally crazy, as more and more of the flows have been pushed into that. Why do you think that these three strategy buckets, so gold, precious metals, potentially crypto, I'm saying the three diversifiers to traditional stocks and fixed income, 
the three that people are highly underallocated to, is it just career risk? Is it lack of understanding? Is it not wanting to look too different? Is it a combination? Is it something else I'm missing? Why do people never have, when we've talked ad nauseum on this podcast specifically about the trend component, which we never see in institution have more than 5% is the, probably the most I've ever seen. Why do you think that's the way that it is? Why are these other three components of what we call the 100-year portfolios underallocated, like the, the precious metals, the long volatility, and also trend following? It might sound like I'm ripping on private equity. There's nothing wrong with private equity, but I actually see it as something that should be an alternative to equity or the passive equity. It shouldn't be a diversifier on top of the portfolio. That's the problem. People are using it as a diversification tool. It's not a diversification tool. Many of these things that people talk about as diversification tools are actually risk enhancers during periods of secular change, stagflation, deflation. Of course, those three asset or the three thematic baskets, the long ball, precious metals or fiat alternatives, and commodity trend or trend, these are true diversifiers. Why are people so underallocated to these? I think there's actually two reasons for this. I like to talk about modern asset management as almost like a Greek tragedy. This is a Greek tragedy waiting to happen. When we enter into a period of secular change, the way that most people's portfolios are constructed are set up for failure if we enter into either stagflation or deflation. Now, if you look at most Greek tragedies like Oedipus Rex or any classic Greek tragedy, the hero is blind to their fate. They're warned of their fate, but they can't prevent it. Either they can't prevent it because they are unwilling to or they're unable to. The unwilling and the unable. I think the unwilling are the big institutional pension systems, the big institutional investors. Now, they might be unwilling for a variety of reasons. One reason is simply that they're so big that it's almost impossible. If you're $100 billion, it's very, very difficult to allocate $25 billion to long ball and CTAs. But even if they wanted to do something like that with gold or something, they oftentimes have to face this massive bureaucracy. There are some incredibly smart people in these institutions, incredibly smart people who have to answer to a whole range of boards and oversight boards and trustees, some of which aren't financially educated. Even though they might see this problem, and many of them are incredibly intelligent and understand this, they are unable to change in that bureaucracy. The bureaucracy makes it unwilling to do so. But the true tragedy are the unable. And the unable is the average retail investor. And I should commend you because you've done a great job with your product sphere. I guess you can't talk about that, but I, but you've done a great product a job with your product sphere of actually broadening, making some of these strategies available to people to some degree. But the unable are really the average retail investor because it is absolutely crazy to me. Someone who has a long track record of running money responsibly in it, like a long volatility fund, for example, can only accept accredited, sophisticated investors. Yet regulators will allow an 18-year-old to get on their iPhone, buy a double-levered VIX ETP, or buy a Dogecoin obscure cryptocurrency. How does that make any sense? Don't forget micro caps. Don't forget lottery tickets, going to a casino. More importantly, Currency, leverage currency, you can get currency at like 20 to 1. You could trade futures. This topic is 
one of the most preposterous things. I think the rules are going away. That's my two cents. You've already had it go like halfway to where you can submit some sort of industry qualifications. I would love to just see it be like a DMV test. You just take it online, takes 10 minutes, you're like, fine. You wanna nuke your money, have at it. At least they could then wash their hands of any responsibility. But the fact that there's an entire category of infinitely worse garbage to incinerate all your money already. And I actually think probably a lot of government legislation, this had good intentions when it was drafted. But at this point, it's totally, and it applies to startup investing too. It's totally past its expiration date. It's going to be a Greek tragedy. The worst situation is retail because these are true diversifiers. I think our world would be a better place if the average pension system, the average retiree had a portfolio that more closely resembled the 100-year strategy. I really believe that. I think I've done a tremendous amount of research, and I'm happy for anyone to look through that research, look through the results of the paper, recreate the results, and tell me if I'm not seeing something, because I think it's all there. They block it to save people, but they're not saving. That is a great tragedy. You know I love this very fine paper because once you get past page 20, there's just reams and reams of tables and historical data to the 1920s and graphs. I mean, this is literally probably my favorite paper of the last three years. About the institutions, by the way, they're often just as guilty or a mess. And it illustrates something you were talking about, which is the struggle of having multiple parties involved and the unwillingness of people to have an, a long enough time horizon. I mean, my God, look at CalPERS management and all the drama they've had over the last five years, multiple CIOs, humorously or not, I guess, getting rid of all their tail risk funds right before the pandemic started. And then places like Harvard, which has had one of the most successful endowments in history, that is essentially moving almost to, it seems like a much more watered down situation. And most recently, it'll be interesting being the wrong word, but Swinson, arguably the greatest institutional allocator in history, he had a pass because of his amazing performance. But you see that the challenge of these structures with so many people involved, it's hard to look different almost, which in many ways is a big shame. There was a lot in there. That was a little bit of a rant. Sorry. <laughs> No, I mean, I think you're right. And I should say, I mean, I know people who are in these pension systems. Many of them are brilliant people, very smart, incredible people. But you are trying to turn a Titanic in some of these things. And it's like one person doesn't have unilateral power. And it's incredibly difficult to do something outside the norm. And it's quite interesting. Most people would rather fail conventionally than succeed unconventionally. And that's the problem. The good news is, like, at least maybe I have a small subset. I mean, from this audience, I feel like a lot of the investors we talk to on the individual and professional level want to, quote, do the right thing. You know, they're willing to look and act different and at least be open to some of these ideas. And I think the last year is such a beautiful example because it's literally every asset in your entire mix had a moment in the sun and shade, right? So like Q1 last year, you're like, thank God I have the long volatility and the bonds and gold. Fast forward to Q2 or three, thank God I had equities to rebound and on and on and on. And this year, trend following is having a great year as you see some of these commodities prices go bananas to the upside, on and on, right? Like it's, but the challenge is not, 
getting wedded to just one of those because you can get totally upside down. And the beauty, which you've also mentioned, is they have the ability to rebalance towards the stuff that's gotten nuked because the things that are appreciating. Exactly. And that's the whole point is that in that portfolio that is balanced by thematic diversification or rebalanced by market regime. So what you're doing is you're looking at the way that different asset classes perform in different regimes. It's not about diversification over a day or a week. It's about diversification over an entire decade. There's a solution to all this. You don't be afraid. You don't predict. You don't need to predict. Everyone wants to predict. Don't be afraid. Don't predict. Prepare. And if you have this diversification by regime, in the first quarter, your long ball is doing well. And then you rebalance. And then in the second quarter, gold and equities are doing well. In the fourth quarter, while your long ball is suffering. In the fourth quarter, uh, equities and then CTAs end up doing really well. So at any point in time, two or three of these diversifiers are outperforming by a wide margin, paying for any of the losses in the other framework, creating a nice upward trajectory. And we saw that last year, and you see it over 100 years. And we actually give you some slides and it's in our paper. You can absolutely see that. Really, at the end of the day, it's about rebalancing. And it requires extreme discipline because it's very, very hard. You talk about people firing their tail risk manager right before the crisis. Well, right when you need a diversifier is probably where it looks the worst in the rear view mirror. Long volatility looked terrible until March. It looked absolutely terrible until March. And then all of a sudden, everyone wants to get into it when they actually probably should be selling it and rebalancing into equities and other things. That is the lesson, and I think it's incredibly difficult. The problem of asset management, the problem of the 100-year portfolio, the portfolio is simple. The problem that we have is not a mathematics or portfolio management or economic problem. It is a social problem. We can't stay with these things. In the same vein, if you were that GI coming back from World War II, you wanted to be in cash and long ball. That's the thing that worked during the Great Depression. The last thing you'd want to be in, looking in the rearview mirror, is real estate and equity in 1945, emotionally the last thing you'd want to be in, even though that was the very thing you needed to be buying at that point in time. But most of asset management is looking in the rearview mirror, either emotionally or literally in the case of some of these strategies on a quantitative basis. Many of these modern portfolio engineering strategies are using some window. You look at a risk parity portfolio, which actually performs all right over 100 years. It's not damning. There's definitely problems. But it's literally using some historical period of correlations and covariance. I always wondered, to me, when I chat with my friends that do risk parity or really almost any strategy, and they mention they do a shorter rolling, I always said, you know, why wouldn't you just use the entire period sort of statistics, you know, to encompass as many possible market outcomes. And I remember back to talking about some of the option strategies from an option index company that excluded 1987, because <laughs> they said that'll, that's not part of it or never happen again, or somebody excludes Japan as an outlier. And it's always a head scratcher because you come to a totally different conclusion. And, you know, part of this is part of the problem with the tools that we have. So I'll be coming out with a new paper. By the time this podcast hits, this paper will probably be out there. It'll be called Moneyball for uh, Modern Portfolio Theory. And it's more of a white paper. It's more of a, it's full of formulas and everything else. And we, we actually will have Python code that will come with it. But we introduced some new ideas. 
So the majority of the asset management industry is based around the Sharp Ratio. Someone's looking at one of your funds or someone comes to evaluate a hedge fund manager, the first thing an allocator asks, what is your Sharp Ratio? The Sharp Ratio at the end of the day is the functional equivalent of a scoring average or batting average for a hedge fund manager or any asset manager. And what it is, is, is actually the return of the asset minus the risk-free rate divided by the volatility of the asset. The Sharp Ratio has several major problems as a methodology for choosing investments. The first is that if you go back and read the original paper by William Sharp, it was never, ever intended to be used for sub-asset selection. It's only used to compare aggregate portfolio against aggregate portfolio. So it's actually useless to choose managers. It's only useful once you have a collection of managers in a portfolio. And a big problem is that it does not take into account correlations between asset classes, and it does not take into account skew or how an asset performs on the right and left tail of the return distribution, the extreme environments. Those are the environments you care about. Where are you afraid of? You're afraid of stagflation and you're afraid of deflation. And so the Sharpe ratio doesn't tell you how asset performs in those environments. Well, let me explain this in just simple English. There's the quote from the Paul D. Podesta from, from Moneyball, and he's in the movie. I guess uh, they had him under a pseudonym in, that, in the movie. But he says, you know, you're not buying players. You're buying wins. And to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Sports has long figured this out. And we all know this. Whatever sport you follow, I'm a basketball guy, but you might be a baseball guy or someone might be a soccer person. When you get a big free agent, you don't really care about that free agent's stats. It matters, but that's not what you really care about, their individual statistics. What you actually care about is if you add that player to your team, will that help your team win? Will the player enhance the number of wins of your ball club? And we all know examples of players with very gaudy individual statistics. And then they put them on a team, and your team actually gets worse because maybe that player is a ball hawk or maybe that player doesn't play defense or all these other things. And then there are players with less impressive statistics where you add them to the team and the team improves and wins because that player is doing things that are not necessarily recorded in statistics as well, but greatly help team success. I published a paper years ago. I talked about this, like Dennis Rodman is an example of this in basketball. Rodman was six standard deviations better at rebounding than the average player. So when you put Dennis Rodman on a team of mediocre scorers, the team's offensive efficiency went up and their wins went up, even though Rodman himself was not a great scorer. You add this guy to your team, and then all of a sudden your team's offense gets better, even though he's a terrible offensive player. How does that happen? Well, he's so good at rebounding the basketball. He would rebound close to 20 rebounds a game when he played with Michael Jordan. You give Michael Jordan a second and third chance by rebounding the basketball, Michael Jordan's not going to miss that shot a second and a third time. So you put Robin on a team with average scorers, the team became really good. You put Robin on a team with great scorers like Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, and it becomes an all-time historically good team. Well, this is what Paul De Podesta meant by saying, you don't buy players, you buy wins. And the sports industry has always been focused on these new metrics, like wins over replacement value, plus minus, that actually measure how does a player affect team winning. The investment management industry is stuck measuring the player and not the wins. They're so focused on individual asset or manager performance 
that they're not focused on how that manager or how that asset helps your total portfolio. And in many, many cases, actually, long volatility is a perfect example of this. A strategy that doesn't have a great sharp ratio, if you combine it with other strategies like equity and bonds, dramatically improves the risk-adjusted performance of the total portfolio. In fact, every asset in the Dragon portfolio is like that. So the Sharpe ratio is useless because it does nothing. It only measures the player. It doesn't measure the player's effect on a winning portfolio. That's what you want. That's what's important. That's what you care about. So we took inspiration from the world of sports, and we've invented a metric called CWARP. And what that stands for is Cole Wins Above Replacement Portfolio. CWARP is what we're calling it. And we'll release analytics on this. Anyone will be able to calculate this. And it's an alternative to the Sharp Ratio. And what it does is that you are able to run a very quick calculation to determine whether or not an asset is improving the risk-adjusted performance of your already existing portfolio. And unlike Sharp Ratios, collections of high CWARP assets will dramatically result in a better portfolio. If you took the highest Sharp Ratio assets and put them into one portfolio, you actually can get a worse portfolio. This, I think, is shocking for most people to understand and one of the biggest flaws in portfolio construction. There's a bunch in there. You know, we used to talk a lot about the Sharp Ratio and we said it's an okay rule of thumb when you're looking at assets that are kind of similar being like long only equities. But there's other problems such as it penalizes up volatility. If a traditional asset is high volatile, but to the upside, that actually hurts the Sharp Ratio. But the main criticism I have of the Sharp Ratio is the way that our industry knowingly misuses it, which is you try to find a fund that has a one or a two-year track record or a often back test and say, sharp ratio four, here we go. And don't even get me started on the interval funds that price their portfolio like once a quarter or once a year. And they'll be like, hey, we have a volatility of four and we're investing in private equity or real estate or something. And said, well, first of all, there's zero chance. We did a chart over a decade ago, and this was inspired by some trend-following friends, Eric Crittenden and crew. But basically, it's like people get marketed these high sharp ratio strategies, which, by the way, are usually, if it is that on paper, it's like the turnaround and run. As you mentioned, like the option selling. But even if you think something has a two, three, four sharp, and you look at all the managers over history, there's none that over time, they all kind of decline to below one. So this dream of this magical land of alpha juice just flowing in rivers, I think is unrealistic, even looking at the top investors of all time. So there's multiple things wrapped up in the problems of Sharp, but you make such a good point of all that matters is the sum total and people love to bucket the investments and they look at one thing, trend following, gold, whatever, hasn't gone anywhere for a few years, I'm out. And in reality, it's nothing matters other than this like bowl of soup together. It's like bay leaves, right? Bay leaves, I don't think they do anything to a soup. Every chef on the planet, they're like, you put it in the soup, it's going to be better. You wouldn't eat a bay leaf. <laughs> It's a matter of what happens with the aggregate, not the pieces. 
So it's absolutely fascinating. Like what this CWARP metric does is it removes some of that because the Sharpe ratio, you're right. It does not look at the tails. It, it treats upside volatility the same as downside volatility and doesn't look at correlations. And that's so important. What our metric does is it's actually incredibly simple. What you do is you assume you take out a loan and finance an asset at 25% and add it to your existing portfolio. Does that improve your risk-adjusted performance and your return to drawdown? And if that's positive, then it's improving your portfolio. If it's negative, it's hurting your portfolio. What we found is that if you run this metric on most hedge funds using a 60-40 portfolio, only one-third of hedge fund strategies actually generate a positive wins above replacement portfolio value. I'm surprised it's so high, given that the vast majority of hedge funds as a category is simply long-short equity. Is that accurate? Which seems just like adding a little more equity. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly right. Because what that's telling you is that most of these strategies are simply layering on more equity-linked correlation risk, or they're shorting tails or the shorting ball in some component to generate their alpha. Those strategies may not be bad necessarily, but they shouldn't be considered diversifiers for the portfolio. They should be considered like an equity or a bond replacement, not a diversifier. You can quantitatively prove they're not diversifiers. And what we found based on this metric, and we're going to give people the tools to do this themselves in the, in the new paper, there'll be a website and some, some work to that effect. It'll help people have fun with this. But like we found that long volatility obviously is a true diversifier. Gold is a true diversifier. Treasuries in an equity portfolio are a diversifier. As far as the actively managed, obviously, commodity trend advisors are a true diversifier. Weirdly, and I never saw this one coming, merger arbitrage. I just assume it just kind of does its own thing. You look at this framework, and these are the diversifiers that actually generate. And like those are, for the metric, you could actually take out a loan at LIBOR plus something layer any of those strategies on top of your pre-existing 60-40 portfolio, and you end up having a better portfolio. Lower drawdowns, better risk-to-risk returns. Those are really some of the only strategies or assets who can do that. To explain this concept, LTCM had a sharp ratio of 4.35 before it blew up. Years ago, I warned about XIV. We first warned about that in 2015, then again in 2017. And then Mike Green, I don't know if you had him on the show, but Mike's an amazing, brilliant talent, smart guy. But him and I actually had an argument at a derivatives conference. We were doing the keynote together. And we actually argued with one of the creators of XIV that the product would eventually fail. If you looked at XIV, it had a sharp ratio of 1.78. Someone naively looking at XIV would say, okay, well, maybe I can add that to my S&P and I'll have a better portfolio. And then if you did that, if you added XIV to the S&P, you'd be like, oh, wow, okay, my sharp ratio goes up. Then we had February where XIV imploded. It was a short vol product that imploded and it lost 99% of its value immediately. Well, what's interesting about that is that if you looked at XIV on a sharp ratio basis, it showed that this was an incredible investment. But if you looked at it on a wins above replacement portfolio or CWARP metric, it showed incredible negative value. And the reason being is that XIV was correlated, incredibly correlated to equities. And when equities lost money, XIV lost even more money. So XIV was really just a form of a levered beta trade with short tails. It was a levered equity trade with short tails. So even though combining XIV with the S&P prior to the day it blew up looked better on a short ratio basis, 
If you actually looked at it on a risk-adjusted basis, measuring drawdowns and the combined only left tail volatility, and you looked at that as a composite wins above replacement portfolio value, it actually resulted in a much more fragile portfolio. Well, that's an extreme example. But one of the things that you'll find is that if you go out there and you find lots of high sharp ratio investments and you just layer them on top of your 60-40 portfolio, you actually end up with bigger drawdowns and worse risk-adjusted performance. It's the classic problem of teams going out there, buying high-priced free agents who have gaudy statistics, but don't actually contribute to team success. I think any Knicks fan until recently probably has, has known that problem. But you like basketball. I almost always wear my Nuggets hat during this show. They at least have something to cheer for. I'm optimistic. The weird thing about your paper, and I got a sneak peek and it's great. The biggest diversifiers to a traditional portfolio, and this is obvious to you and I, but it's like a who's who of categories that no one allocates to. Is that a fair assessment of like, or sorry, like not at least... If they do, it's tiny, it, but most, if I had to talk to the average advisor and I'm going down this list, long vol, gold, CTA, systematic, merger are maybe, no one has any of those that I ever talk to. The exact opposite conclusion is what you would expect. I think everyone looks at this 100-year portfolio concept and they'll nod their heads. They'll be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense in the data. But when it actually comes to putting 20% of your money in long volatility overlay in precious metal or rebalancing out of long volatility in March and into equities in April and vice versa. When equities are killing it, rebalancing out of equities into something like long vol and CTAs that are losing money, most people can't do it. I'm surprised the short bias in market neutral ranked as poorly. Do you think that's partially just due to the subset of time? And if we get a haymaker of U.S. bear market, they might bubble up into the better ranking? Or what's your opinion? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think in the paper that is yet to be released, we got a preview of it. I mean, that data is only from 07 to... But so it still includes financial crisis for the most part. It does, yeah. But short bias managers have had really a tough go of it, especially recently. Oh, my goodness. I don't think there's any left. There's a list of short hedge funds and it's like the worst equity curve. It just goes down and down and down. I think it's like, <laughs> there's probably like five left. Yeah, it's really, really tough. I would think that if you had a hundred years of records for short bias hedge funds, which you don't, but I would theorize that that would rank higher on that wins above portfolio, replacement portfolio metric. So in that sense, you know, you are like, like any metric, you know, you are limited to the history of data that you have. It also gets into this concept too, which is really interesting. Most people don't consider opportunity cost. And that's another problem with the sharp ratio or just the way people think about portfolio construction. Because, and what is the opportunity cost? Well, a dollar at the bottom of a market after a crash is worth way more than a dollar at the top. A dollar in March of 2009 is worth far more than a dollar presumably in 1999 or a dollar you know, presumably today. So, and likewise, a dollar at the end of March, 2020 is worth more than a dollar today. Well, many investments give you liquidity based on in those periods of crisis. So investments like long vol and CTAs and investments that actually 
profit from extreme right or left tails will give you money when capital is scarce. People are not selling out of some panic and out of control emotional thing. They're selling because they're over leveraged and they have to sell. They're selling because they need liquidity and capital is scarce in a crisis. That's why assets go from being overvalued to undervalued so quickly. Well, in that sense, somebody who, an asset that is giving you liquidity in a crisis has tremendous value if you're able to rebalance during that period of time. We go back to the sports analogy. A rebound when your team is missing in the fourth quarter is worth a ton. Every rebound that Dennis Rodman can get in the fourth quarter and pass it back to Michael Jordan for another shot is worth a ton in points. So not these true diversifying asset classes rebound your portfolio when there's a crisis. And that more than pays for any negative bleed during these other periods. This is true of any of these. This is true of, to some extent, any of these other diversifiers. A lot of asset classes, like you look at something like private equity, actually takes liquidity away. You don't have the ability to rebalance. In fact, there might even be capital calls. You think back to the financial crisis, all the endowments got upside down on that problem specifically. They went through a 50% portfolio drawdown, and all of a sudden, private equity, <laughs> they're, they're stuck. When somebody looks at the performance metrics of those investment products, it does not take into account the opportunity cost of the capital and the value of the capital during the cycle. So something like a, a wins above replacement portfolio does. It does because it's constantly looking at the rebalancing of that and how that plays into something. So it'll take into account that framework where something like a sharp ratio is not. It's interesting because when I did the 100-year portfolio paper, I didn't know what the answer would be. I didn't do that paper with a product in mind. I didn't do that paper. I had a sense that it would show that something like long ball would be helpful, but it was truly like an intellectual exercise. That's like the brute force method. And from this brute force method, we came up with this conclusion as to what this collection of assets works great as a team. But then we worked out and developed a new mathematical formula from a more elegant mathematical framework that looks at portfolio construction. And we then applied that framework to a range of assets and we get the same answer. And that's not by design. That's like purely the fact that we're approaching this problem by two entirely separate analytical methods and you get the same answer plus merger arbitrage, which is something I never saw coming. What's been the main response to the paper? I mean, to me, it seems obvious, but you're kind of speaking to your wheelhouse when people have emailed you or talked with you about this paper and subsequent last year, this year, any consistent responses from the investor community or what's been the general feedback? Well, I think one of the first big considerations that people have is how do I get access to long ball and CTAs being a retail investor? And that is admittedly difficult. If you're a big institution or a family office, it's relatively easy to do that in an inefficient way. It's harder if you're a retail investor, and I, I admit that. Hence, some of my frustration that we expressed at the beginning of the show, both of our frustration with some of these, the way that regulators look at the world. I think that's particularly interesting. I get a lot of questions on how to construct this independently, and I think I addressed some of that in the other paper. It's actually relatively hard. One of the biggest problems is the dead cash problem. If an institution gives me capital to run my ball strategies or a CTA strategy, 
of all or a CTA strategy oftentimes only needs anywhere between two to 20% of the money that comes on in, in order to run its core strategy. So what an institution will do is they'll take that excess cash and they'll use it for equities or bonds. But oftentimes it just sits there. If you're um, allocating to an external fund, it just kind of sits there dead in basic cash reinvestment that isn't even matching the management fees. So that is one of the huge advantages that institutions have. And it's also one of the advantages of actually working with an advisor that can actually commingle all these things. Do it the best possible way and to hit return targets over 10% a year and 15% all, you have to commingle all of these assets and manage the cash efficiency problem. We call it the dead cash problem. One of the big criticisms that I've got on the paper, which I think is a little bit unfair, which is like, well, you're still having correlation risk in that portfolio, in the Dragon portfolio. I would agree. There's still correlation risk in the Dragon portfolio. It's entirely possible, yes, in a world that stocks, volatility, CTAs, gold, and bonds all decline together. Is that possible? Absolutely. Is that more likely to happen than what most the average portfolio is? The average portfolio has far more correlation problems than that diversified portfolio. So there is a correlation dynamic there as there is with any portfolio, but I think it's a much better diversified portfolio. I'm trying to even figuring out how that could possibly happen. And it's like a brain pretzel knot to try to figure out what environment that could possibly exist in. Because theoretically, the trend side will pick up whatever's happening eventually. So it'd have to be a sharp move. And then the volatility, I don't even know how that would possibly miss. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's a pretzel. There's one environment. It's never happened historically. There's no proxy for this. I don't see a world where this would happen, but I can think of one environment where all the asset classes would go down together. And that would be an environment like, let's imagine, hypothetically, I'm trying to poke holes in my own theories here. Q1 theoretically could have been the runway because bonds, terrible starting point, stocks, terrible starting point, gold, like you could just gold, who knows with gold. And the commodity could just be off on the wrong foot at the beginning of it. But how could volatility not capture that part? Let's imagine that central banks have already reduced interest rates to zero. So bonds can't go any lower. So you're not going to get any performance out of your bonds. So then what happens is that interest rates are going up slightly, not massively, but a little bit, teeny bit at a time. So bonds are taking small losses. Equities decline three basis points a day consistently. They decline three basis points a day. So every single day, the equity market is down you know, two, three basis points without fail. So it's just this drip, 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 teeny bleep. This has never happened. We're talking hypothetical. So as a result of that, volatility is sub 10. In fact, it's probably be sub five. Even though the equity markets are declining bit by bit every day, you're not getting a payout in your long ball because there's no vol. Vol's actually low, despite the fact that the equity markets are dropping. By the same reason, there's no breakout performance in commodities because there's no rampant out-of-control inflation because rates are ticking up bit by bit by bit a day. So you get trickling losses in fixed income, trickling losses in equities, 
trickling losses in commodities, gold does nothing, and vol just bleeds out because you're that scenario. There is no historical record of that in financial history. It seems like the good news is at least that it's not going to be a hard left, like you're going to lose half. It'd be like a sunburn. It's got to go away eventually. It'd be a slow sunburn. So could that happen? Sure, anything can happen. There's a probability of anything. But I think the probability of that occurring, I mean, generally speaking, you have very hard right or left tail environments. I think the risk of that is far less than the risk of stocks and bonds declining together, destroying conventional portfolios. If you had to shoot one of the five in your portfolio, it's like the old game, like marry, mate with, or murder. Which of the five would you shoot in 2021? I think I'll know the answer. If I had to shoot one in 2021, it'd be the bonds. <laughs> bonds. This is the problem. I wouldn't want to shoot one of the five because when I sit down, we get asked this question sometimes, well, why not just take the bonds down to zero? Well, you talk to Lacey Hunt, who's here in Austin. Lacey's one of the smartest guys I know. He knows way more about inflation than I do. Well, at the end of the day, you know, he's truly a proponent of deflation and continues to be a proponent of deflation. So it may look like we'd want to shoot the bonds in this environment, but maybe when all of this, we get a kind of wear out of the stimulus and people, the full scope of the unemployment problems and the fact that people's solvency problems comes to light, maybe we get a sharp left turn back to deflation. And then all of a sudden you end up getting some solid performance out of the bond portfolio. This is why I say, don't fear, don't predict. Because in me shooting one of those assets, there's an implicit prediction about what I think will happen. The beauty is that the beauty in this diversification by market regime over hundred years is that you don't predict. I might want to shoot bonds and I might regret it. You're a rare bird, despite being someone who's on the long vol camp. So many people become wedded to their strategy or style or asset class and bowsing this balance. So many portfolios we see all the time are so lopsided. And even if people move off zero, it's like a couple percent. It's sad because we want to play these games where we pigeonhole people into these personalities. The New York Times did an article about me several years ago, and I was a little sad about how it turned out because it just kind of painted me as this kind of end of the world guy. We've always believed that the right way to re- tell our clients the right way to run long ball is to pair it with equity and risk. We exist to help you take risk responsibly. Dennis Rodman with a bunch of scorers is a great team. You've got balance. A team of Dennis Rodmans is a terrible team. Who's the worm in this analogy? Is it long ball? Long ball is the worm in this analogy. Exactly. So, you know, you got a guy that can rebound the shots, but no one can score. So, The whole point is that these things should be used together. I think the wrong impulse is to say, I'm going to invest in long ball, gold, cash, and build a bunker. Use these as diversifiers and rebalance them accordingly and use them to help take risk responsibly. But that's not what sells newspapers. That's not what people want to hear on FinTwit. People want to create caricatures and create heroes and villains. I don't care, but when it comes down to the right way to use these products, I care. I think our clients 
are smart about that. I think the hardest part of that 100-year portfolio is the long ball. I truly believe it's the hardest thing to do and do well. Being able to carry left tail exposure and non-correlation and not bleed is one of the most difficult things and probably one of the only things we're paying for in the investment world, paying a premium for. There is value in having someone put the pieces together for you, though. I think there is a tremendous value in that. It's a very non-trivial mental hack, and you've seen a lot of institutions go this way on their own, where they'll like, it could be a managed futures manager, it could be a long vol manager. They say, look, I know you're not going to be able to stomach this on your own because you're human and this is the way it is. So we're going to wrap it where it's half managed futures and half equity and call it something else. And so this concept of whether an advisor does it, whether Artemis does it, whether it's an actual fund that puts the two together, the hard part for an individual and many professionals too is they still look at like the line item and they see one thing could be long vol, could be trend, who knows, that's like consistently red. Whatever the runway is, maybe it's a year, maybe it's two. But even asset, large asset classes that were yesterday's darling, emerging markets, my God, no one could get enough emerging markets in the 2000 to 2007 period. Every person on the planet, commodities, real estate, and then flip. <laughs> no one wanted stocks. When was the most popular period for tail risk hedging? was right after the 08 financial crisis. So I always say this, we're still have our bread and butter in long volatility. It's always what we do and always will be what we do. I will tell you, after doing this for over a decade, our phone is ringing off the hook for our long vol product when VIX is at 70. It's too late. That's not when you want to be putting money in long vol. You need to be putting money in long vol when it's a net loser and in the rearview mirror and vol's low. That's an equity market is doing well and vice versa. Everyone's scared of equity when in March of 2009, and that's when you should be putting money. A disciplined approach that has a discipline of rebalancing these is what's so vital. You don't need to time anything. You don't need to time if you have all the components together. You don't need to predict your time. If you have all the components together, you put them together, you trust in them, you know what they're there for. We sit back and I told those guys, I'm like, I don't care if you're flat to down for a decade. But what I care about is if we enter into stagflation, you do well. That's what I care about. Because I want my commodity trend guys to do really, really well during runaway momentum periods of stagflation and inflation when commodity prices are exploding. If your rebounder or your defensive player or your goalie hasn't been used for most of the game because your offense is doing so well, you don't pull your defenders. (laughs) Investors do it all the time. They're constantly pulling their goalie and their defenders to put on more offensive players on the table. This is why we say it's so essential that investors try to codify or write down their investment plan and rules on paper, even if it's one page, it could be half a page. Here's my dragon portfolio. I'm going to rebalance this once a year, wipe my hands, done. But then you have to stick to it. It could be tolerance based, you know, if something declines 20%, whatever, doesn't matter. The whole key is having that sort of methodology that allows you to take advantage of exactly what you're talking about, which is last March, thank God you had some long vol sort of investments and you could rebalance or vice versa. Thank God it's lost money 
while the stock market's up 30%. Rebalance. If you took your paper, and maybe you can add this to your website at one point because it's a great game. Again, referencing my buddy Eric Crittenden used to do with investors is he would make all the asset classes anonymous and give it to an investor and say, okay, look at these stats. You pick. What do you want? And or put them together and show the final portfolios. And of course, he was looking at the trend-following world. Invariably, they would end up with a huge chunk in trend-following, of which they had none. But then when they actually had to go implement it, no chance. So this concept of what you mentioned of mentally stepping away from these labels and your emotional attachment to them, I don't want my identity to be attached to my ideas. Because if you're an equities guy and all of a sudden you have to sell some, or to think back 2007, you didn't want to sell your real estate. So bulls, peak of their run. We've already identified of the dragon, the five pieces, who the worm is. He's long vol. Who are the other five players? Jordan's got to be equity, right? The most popular. Yeah, Jordan's equity, for sure. Absolutely. Jordan's definitely equity. Let's look at this, because you had Longley, you had Pippin, and you had Ron Harper. I'm going to call Ron Harper CTAs, because Ron Harper was a great perimeter defender. So that was the guy who was creating havoc on the perimeter. I'm going to call Scotty Pippen Bonds, Jordan Pippen, the meat and potatoes. And Pippen was also a great defender. Longley, I guess, is gold because he's Australian and they make gold and they mine gold in Australia. <laughs> so, <laughs> Who's like the most inconsistent of the bulls? That's why I would have said with gold is like you never know if they're going to show up and play good or terrible. Probably Kukok was the <laughs> Yeah, he could be a good gold too. I was going to say Steve Kerr could be Bonds just because he's so boring, but he didn't have enough of a role, so you couldn't include him. I think Pippen is the right on. That's your dragon portfolio, the 98 Chicago Bulls. Hopefully it lasts more than the last dance, though. Hopefully you can ride that team for 100 years rather than just three championships. That's like an institutional portfolio manager messing up a good thing. You had a good portfolio and then they started mucking around with it. What are you going to do? Chris, I've been holding you for a long time. Anything else you're thinking about? We've already talked about your new pieces. As you look out, it's been a weird last two years. As you look out to the rest of 2021, anything else on your brain? Confused, excited about as you sip a beer or go to sleep, wake you up in the middle of the night? What's on the frontal lobe? I think it's been interesting just to sort of see some of these, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about for five years, the correlation breakdown between stocks and bonds, which you and I talked about, I think in our first podcast, first time I was on the show and was talked about in a 2015 paper, I think the reflexivity and the, the short VIX, in the, excuse me, the reflexivity in the global short volatility trade, you know, that $3 trillion short vol trade that is on both implicitly and explicitly, you know, and the unwind of that, which I think was talked about in some of the papers in 2017. And, and now I think most recently, you know, it, it's Mike Green's theory, but the dominance of passive and how that's affecting different flows as well. I think, you know, one of the things I'm proud of across my career is that a lot of these themes, and I know you and I have discussed many of these in the past, both in the podcast and offline as well. It is interesting to see some of these themes and theories really come to fruition. And we are entering a period of secular decline in some capacity. The, the framework where, I don't know if it's going to be stagflation, I don't know if it's going to be deflation, but we have an unprecedented level of global debt, highest corporate debt to GDP in American history, some of the highest uh, government deficits, and the spending isn't stopping. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but I do know that there's two ways to deal with excess overhang debt. 
this deflation and stagflation. And the, the structure of markets, I think, is particularly fragile. I think we've seen that the last two years. I think there are ways to improve portfolios. You don't need to be afraid. Not everything needs to be this doomsday into the world. These inefficiencies can be opportunities for people. The Dragon Fund and, excuse me, the Dragon Portfolio, a 100-year portfolio, had an amazing year last year. That portfolio consistently made money throughout the year. So you can transform this period of secular change to your benefit, but you can't if you're just looking at the last 40 years as your baseline. I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk about some of these things with you and bring it full circle. Well, good. We can rope everyone in at your large happy hour gathering. We'll post links to this. We'll post links to this soon uh, when we get a date on the books. I miss Austin. I need to get back down there. Chris, best place for people to go. They want to find all these papers. I mean, we'll post them to the show notes. Listeners, metfavor.com forward slash podcast. But keep up with what y'all are doing. Inquire into your funds, everything else. Where do they go? Yeah, just go to uh, www.artemiscm.com, www.artemiscm.com, right on the website, all our research up there. So you can download it. Um, Unfortunately, I'm also on Twitter, but come to our website. The best framework is the deep dive on the research papers. I think that's some of the best stuff. Awesome, my friend. Thanks so much for joining us. And next time, we won't wait so long. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. What's up, friends? We have a phenomenal show for you today where we're talking the ponies. Our guest is the founder of EQB, a high-tech sports analytics company that consults with the majority of the major thoroughbred racehorse stables. Today's episode, we hear the best Moneyball story you've never heard. With the Kentucky Derby this weekend, there's no one better to listen to than our guest, who's disrupted the horse racing industry with his quantitative approach. He walks us through all he's gone through to gather data over the last 30 years and why the industry is still resistant to this day. Then he explains why studying the size of a ventricle in a horse's heart led him to believe it had the potential for greatness, leading him to tell his boss, sell your house, just don't sell this horse. Not a bad call since the horse was American Pharaoh, who went on to become the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years. As we wind down, we hear what our guest thinks about the weekend's Kentucky Derby and his advice if you're thinking of betting on the race and boxing up that exacta. Please enjoy this episode with EQB's Jeff Sater. Jeff, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Where in the world do we find you today? Today I am in southern Pennsylvania between Lancaster and Philadelphia on a horse farm. And it is a beautiful spring day. I miss springtime in the East Coast. I'm a West Coaster now, but spring is as good as it gets. So we're going to get all things horses for a minute, and I want to hear your origin story on when you started to get into horses, but you have a pretty cool background. I mean, we're talking Harvard MBA, Peace Corps, bobsleds, all sorts of crazy stuff. Give me the quick origin story on how a guy who has that sort of background gets into horses. I took a ride one day in May when I was 26 at a rental stable on a date, and instead of falling in love with a girl, I fell in love with a horse. <laughs> <laughs> And I started doing everything horse and became obsessed. And then it was May, not May, it was probably March or something in my senior year. I was in the Harvard JD MBA program and I had to do a thesis that was a combination of business and law. And my thesis advisor was Archibald Cox from the massacre, the Nixon thing, the investigator independent counsel, a famous guy. And I had went into his office and it was in the stacks, which is the stacks are all just stacks of books everywhere in the belly of a library somewhere. And I sat down and he said, well, 
how's it going? And I, well, I had to admit, I really hadn't done much of anything. I thought he would throw me out. And he says, well, what are you interested in? And I looked down at the floor and I said, horses. <laughs> and I thought that would kill it, but it didn't. And so he turned around and he and pulled up enormous book off the shelf behind him, it drops it on the desk and the dust goes up all over the place. And he says, this is the Massachusetts statute that governs horse racing. I don't think anybody at Harvard has ever looked at it. Why don't you do that? So I did and I became wild. I went to the state house in Boston. I looked up things about the racetrack's finances and the law and everything else. And I ended up getting an A on it. And I wanted to find a career with horses where I might be able to actually earn some money. So I decided that would be in racing. The more I learned, I realized that horse racing was really done the way it had been done for like 300 years ago. There was no modern management at the tracks or in the stables. There was no real modern stuff in the selection or the management of the horses by trainers. Most of the stuff about pedigree was just garbage statistics, just garbage methodology. And I said, well, I'm computer literate. We were just starting with computers and I was working with a huge computer with punch cards and programming in Fortran. And I said, but I know something about statistics and I got an MBA. I can make a contribution here. And not only that, but it was so I started doing that. And then in 1976, the East Germans burst on the scene. The Olympics had always been a competition between Russia and the United States, who can win the most medals. And all of a sudden, this little country was skunking us both. And it was a big surprise. And there were rumors that they were doing it with mad scientists in the basement with five-year-olds that had been there for a decade. And it turned out it mostly was steroids and other crap. But anyway, and the United States decided they needed a reaction. So a number of the coaches banded together, and it became what is now the United States Olympic Sports Medicine Committee. And I was one of the founding people because I was involved with some of the coaches, and I was called in as a young lawyer to help them get a nonprofit status because they said they would help people who were trying to help the Olympics with the tax law. So I was too young to realize that it would trigger people like Nike and other people never paying any taxes ever again, claiming everything was for the Olympic research. But I actually got it done. I think I was the only one. And then they slammed that loophole shut. And so then we had a foundation, which ended up breaking away. I ended up doing half of the biomechanics work with a attached at the hip to the guy who was the head of the biomechanics division of United States Olympic Sports Medicine Committee, Dr. David Barlow, a terrific guy. And we went to the bobsled and the fencing and the figure skating and we had special cameras and and all kinds of computer and digitized and everything. I, I was a big education and we made a big difference. The bobsled people before we got involved had never been in a metal contention. And after that, they were. They had bought a million dollar sled. They thought that would make the difference, but it didn't. What made the difference, we went up and we filmed at Lake Placid at the World Championships. What we did, we benchmarked the perennial champions who were the Scandinavians and the Germans and the East Germans and the Swedish and things like that, and the Swiss. And we found out that it was how they pushed the sled. We were recruiting like football players to push our sled, but they were more or less recruiting people like ballet dancers. They were so coordinated, the outside leg, the inside leg of both guys, the sled didn't wobble at all. And that little wobble at the start, by the time you get down to the bottom of the hill, it was slowing you down. It was a lot of friction. And it was a big deal how you push the sled, the way they did that not the sheer power, but the smoothness of it. To do that, we had to set up the camera and the top of the hill, 
And the East German coach knew what I was doing and he didn't want us to do it. So he stood in front of my camera. So I politely asked him to move. And each time when they would get there, he would stand in front. So finally, I just had to push him aside. And then he got pushed back. Well, I was an Olympic level, trials level wrestler. I didn't need any shit from him. (laughs) But I just basically had him down the hill and went on and got our film done. And it was an eventful trip. And when you say film, I mean, this wasn't like iPhone film. Like, this is probably... No, no, this was a low cam. The specialized camera was specialized film. It went 500 pictures a second. It was all film. The video cameras were over $100,000. It would do what an iPhone would do now. So it was a big rigmarole to get that data and to analyze it. But we did it. And so did you ever take a turn behind the wheel and head down the track? That no, seemed it didn't. horrifying to me. <laughs> I learned to ride, which I was also on a motorcycle. I had a motorcycle racing license from production, 600 cc's. And riding a racehorse felt faster. It was scary. While we were in Lake Placid, we took a plaster horse, statue of a horse, and put it in their wind tunnel and study stuff about the horse and the jockey and stuff. Anyway, so I got into it that way. And I attached myself to Barlow and the Olympic thing. And then I, there was a guy at MIT, George Pratt, who was an electrical engineer who was really interested in horses. And he was doing high-speed photography at their gate and writing about it. And so I went and worked with him and helped him. And that's kind of the launch of the thing. And now it's 35 years later and millions of dollars of private research and huge databases. And so what was the sort of origin story? Was it you deciding to go out on your own? Was it in the early days where you're like, look, I'm probably too big to be a jockey? I was too big to be a jockey. I didn't have the connections. I didn't have the money. So I said, if I'm going to do something in horse racing, I think it's I'm going to help them with management and science because they're really, the pedigree stuff is, if we get into the statistical thing of what I'm doing and how I do the quant, I'll get to talk about pedigree and I'll make an enemy of all the traditional horsemen when you hear that. Good. But it sounds like this podcast. But so like, how does one get started back then? I imagine there weren't really that many organizations out there where you could say, hey, let me come apprentice or intern or. No, there wasn't. I had to hide in the bushes at the world championships (laughs) with my camera (laughs) on the backstretch of filming horses and go and talk to the trainers. And I would go and talk to a famous trainer at the time. One was Leroy Jolly. And he listened for like five minutes. He says, I don't need that. I know it all, literally, unquote. And I thought, oh, God. And that's what I was up against. And then we got all kinds of surprises. And of course, a lot of times the surprises are not what the traditional people want to hear. And some of it's not so surprising, but they don't want to hear it the way you say it. Like the Olympic riders, they would talk about balancing the horse on the bit. As physics, that's ridiculous. They were experts. They were winning. They were doing something. So I had to figure out what the hell does balancing the horse on the bit mean? Because it sure as hell isn't the center of gravity of the horse. So it was a lot of work. And then we would go back and show it to them, and they didn't know what to do with it. And a lot of them didn't want to hear it, or they didn't have time. And nobody would pay for it. It all came out of my own pocket. I had to have a day job. I came out of JDMBA and I had been in Africa in the Peace Corps and I was really interested in developing countries. So I went to the Citicorp. In those days, the International Banking Group of Citicorp was, that was it for international banking, developing countries. But I wasn't really happy there. And I went one day to have lunch in their new building at Lexington and 52nd or something. It had this huge atrium where this lunchroom, which were like three or four stories high. And all around 
on the walls was this huge mural of Pennsylvania farmland. And I was looking at it and thinking, why am I looking at this? Why aren't I living it? And I quit within a week. And I went to Pennsylvania and I got a job and I worked with my dad's company. I worked with this and that. I basically then proceeded to lose money for like 20 years developing technology until it started to work. But when it started to work, oh my God, we ended up the first triple crown winner in 37 years. We bought more world champions and the graded stakes are the biggest races. And we won more, bought more at below auction average prices, more of those than anybody in history. Not that most people either realize it or pay attention because it's so insular. And This is all obvious, I feel like, to a lot of people now in retrospect. You have the money ball for baseball. You have people talking about the sports analytics revolution. But, yeah, but not 1970. Right, and not at the time. <laughs> so tell me about the early days. Like When you talk to the trainers and the buyers, what was, you mentioned pedigree, was that kind of the number one factor? That in was number one. And they had all kinds of experts. They were encyclopedias of the entire bazillion facts of the stud book. And yet the best, the number one, the top 1%, most expensive stallions, maybe 5 or 10% of their offspring were any good. And if 1% or 2% won a championship, that was a big deal. Oh, look, that's because of his pedigree. And I'm thinking 99% weren't that good. 90% were bad. How is that a powerful, and because you all believe it, those horses get the very best veterinary and the very best training and the very best this and that. And I got a good long look at what the difference between the average and the very best was. Your basic racetrack is like a hospital where all the doctors got their MD in a two-week correspondence course. High school graduates, illegal aliens being paid under the table, walking the horse. I mean, I was a pointy head. They thought I talked funny. What was your wedge in? And what was your initial Well, insight? what I did was I went to one of the most famous, the guy who won the Triple Crown with a Seattle sloop, Billy Turner. And he had come up to the steeplechase ranks. I met a girl named Patty Miller. I hired her to help me break a young horse I had. And she was a leading amateur steeplechase rider. And she was fascinated by what I was doing. And she was a friend of all the steeplechase people. And basically, she took me to people. And he worked with me. I worked closely with Billy Turner in the first three or four years. And I brought the Olympic stuff over. So anyway, I quit my job and then I did it. And then I started that thing with the Olympics thing. And then I got to work with Billy Turner and we started having some really good horses for people. And George Strawbridge was a neighbor, like a mile away. So Patty, she knew him personally. So he tried me out. Among the first few horses I bought him, I bought him a world champion the first year for the average price of that auction. And then the next year I bought him another world champion, two in a row. Most people don't even get close in their entire lifetime. And then one of the guy who had been leading in the country, Eclipse award-winning breeder and a racing guy named Ken Ramsey, a good old guy from Kentucky, from Lexington, and a gentleman, wonderful guy. Anyway, she got me to talk to him. Actually, that was through some veterinarian or something. He said, okay, go over my horses. He had like 200 and then make me a recommendation. Let's see what you got. So I went over all his horses and I called him back. And then like in three weeks was the Belmont Stakes. And I said, I want you to enter Nolan's cat in the Belmont Stakes. And he burst out laughing. <laughs> the horse did not want to race, but it was by his new sire he was trying to promote. Nolan was his son or his nephew or somebody. It was Nolan's cat by Catiensis was the sire name. 
I said, I'm serious. He said, what are you talking about? It's a maiden. It hasn't won a race. I said, it hasn't won a race because you haven't sent it far enough. The Belmont Stakes is one of the longest races ever in the whole season. It's a mile and a half. Most of them are half that or less. I said, I know he's not fast, but he never slows down. I've done my homework. You'll see him by the end of the race. He'll be picking up horses. You're going to be in the money. You got a chance. And not only that, but then it's the grade one race. It's a classic race. Then the first crop of your Sal Stallion you're trying to promote in his first crop will have had a classic horse that was competitive in the classic grade one championship races. So he entered the horse and the trainer who was a well-known trainer. Dale Romans was furious and pissed off. And when I got there that, and the, Daily Racing Forum review of the Belmont Stakes the day before. They said this horse and this horse and the pedigree and the blah, blah, blah. And then there's the jokers and then basically the nincompoops. And they've got to enter the horse for vanity purposes. Don't know what the hell they're doing. That was me with the let's cat. So, by the way, I never got an apology from those turkeys. Anyway, so I got there the day of the race and was right before the race. And the trainer was there and he was pissed off. And he said, they're forcing me to do this. He's telling the press and this and that. Yeah. So then they come out of the gate. Nolan's cat, of course, is dead last in trailing the field, which I knew what happened earlier, but I wanted to hide under the table because I knew this was going to be like mega humiliating. (laughs) The wise ass from Harvard fucks it up. And then we get about halfway through the race and he's starting to catch up. And then we get about two thirds of the way and he's starting to pick up horses. And by the end, he's flying and he's third. It looks like he might actually catch the winner and he's third. And in the Belmont Stakes, grade one. And to prove it wasn't a fluke, then later on in the million dollar you see the Louisiana Derby, the Delta debt, something, a million dollar race. He was second or third again. And so he was made. Point was made. So Ramsey hired me and I started doing work on his horses and bringing some of the technology. I also had looked into interval training. That was all the rage back then. They thought the Germans were winning East Germans because of interval training. It was more because of steroids, but it doesn't work on horses, but it was all the rage and everybody tried to move it over into horses. I could give you a half an hour speech why it's a waste of time on a thoroughbred racehorse. In fact, it's harmful. But I did the work to find that I had to fail at it, trying it. I invented the first. There was no heart rate meter that was accurate on racehorses. They were all using human meters. And because the horse twitches off flies and with a little electrical muscle in the skin, it would screw up the EKG signals and the electrodes would move around. I had to invent electrodes and then I had to invent a heart rate meter that had a QRS interval autocorrelation function. So there had to be a cure. It had to look like an EKG to be counted as a heartbeat. And so I invented the first successful, accurate racehorse the size of a pack of cigarettes. I ended up selling it to all the research universities, but nobody at the racetrack would buy it. When somebody at the racetrack stole one, we had a party. Anyway, so we invented that. And then we went after, we decided <laughs> interval training is a waste of time. But some people thought it was the size of the heart. And there was a guy in Australia who measured hearts in autopsies and he would listen to hearts and he took an EKG and he claimed he could get correlated to the mass of the heart. And that was what was really important in racehorses. And so I looked at the whole thing. I studied it. And I said to myself, I'm also a good mechanic. I went through general Motors mechanic school and I went to night school in Somerville when I was at Harvard to learn truck mechanics because I wanted to work on my own motorcycle. Anyway, I, a pretty good mechanic. Anyway, I looked at what this guy was doing. And I said, this little shitty machine that the EKG is being printed out on. And he's measuring to the millimeter on the tape, right? I said, this little motor in there is going to go faster or slower, depending on all the barn electricity is notoriously surging up and down and all over the place. It's going to go faster and slower. And so the 
businesses are going to be varying depending on the, how clean the power is in the barn. And I know in these barns, it's crap. So the wiring's not the code in most places in those days. So I said, this is not going to work. We have to measure the heart directly. Anyway, we built from an Apple 2C computer and all kinds of other crap and programming in machine language. And we could measure the distances of the thickness of the heart and the volume of the heart and how much it pumped. We were the first ones to do it. It got copied. Now you can buy it off the shelf. I didn't patent anything and it's all been stolen. And it's used in the industry. That's where they come from now for the horse's heart. Anyway, so we did that. And then we were working on breakdowns, the black box stuff. And then we we used A-mode ultrasound, pitch and catch ultrasound to measure the bone strength. Same kind of logic. We said they were measuring bone strength by trying to do it by how much calcium there was or all kinds of ways that were not direct. I said, why don't we just measure it direct? The elastic modulus of the bone was directly related to the speed of sound through it. So if we can get a duplicate of the path that we're getting through the bone, we'll be directly measuring the speed. I went and collected the legs of every horse that broke down at one of the local racetracks. And I froze them and sent them up to MIT. We put it into an Instrom unit and we duplicated the timing and the quantity of forces of a race. How did I know that? I buried force plates in a racetrack and used my high-speed camera and coordinated all the shit to get the timing of, of everything in the gate and how much force there was thing. We put transducers on horses' hooves and things. And for everything that we did right, we did nine things wrong. We had disasters. We would have when we had everything wired on the horse and the horse would get going and everything would come apart and break and the jockey would get hurt and everybody be pissed off and things like that. And one time there was a delay on the frozen legs going to MIT. And so it got held at Logan Airport and it thawed out and it was blood coming out of the and the FBI and everybody came and opened the box. I was picturing I the poor receptionist at MIT <laughs> or the delivery person delivering a bunch of horse legs over you know, frozen horse legs. Well, the one that wasn't frozen created oh, a stir. Yeah. Anyway, we figured out that we could, in fact, predict when the bone would break from the speed of sound through the bone. And we ended up, we couldn't get anybody to use it. We were going to charge 10 bucks each time. The horses break down. There was 5,000 a year. I don't know if you read the thing. One of the big disgraces of horse racing is how many horses are breaking down at five dying a year or a day. If in professional baseball, they were hauling five pitchers off the mound dead a day, I think maybe it would be a scandal, but it wasn't for the horses. So we had a big meeting and there was an MD at the meeting. And he says, if you can do that, that'll be a great non-invasive bone scanner for osteoporosis. So we contacted Johnson and Johnson and they bought the whole thing. And it ended up, it's a major thing now. They use it. It never came back to horses. And it came out of little nut cakes in a little shack in a cornfield where we did all our work. But that's usually where the innovation comes from. It's often not repeating just what people have done for decades. And of course, the horses hundreds of years. And you mentioned so much with analytics is disproving commonly held beliefs. This happens in my world of investing all the time where people just parrot and repeat what they've heard without ever testing it. And often it's a not only true, but in some cases, 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And so yeah, that's what I found. And now a quick word from our sponsor, uranium, the fuel for nuclear power is generally considered a contrarian investment whose returns are typically not correlated to other asset classes. Low uranium prices lasted for many years after the Fukushima meltdown, leading to substantial supply destruction. And today's prices Uranium mining is considered uneconomical even for the world's lowest cost producers. 
According to Morgan Stanley Research, uranium demand is already estimated to exceed existing supply, and future demand growth is expected. New mines aren't economically viable at today's prices, according to some analysts who predict the price of uranium may need to double to over $60 per pound to incentivize sufficient new mine supply to meet expected demand. The NYSE-listed North Shore Global Uranium Mining ETF, ticker symbol URNM, offers investors exposures to both miners and holders of uranium. For more information, visit urnmetf.com. The foregoing information is not intended to be a recommendation to invest in uranium or any uranium-related investments. Please consult an investment professional for advice specific to your situation. And now back to the show. And so talk to me about some of the, you mentioned the heart. I mean, that was a big insight for you. What were some other things you said pedigree is not as important? Anything else in particular that stood out as being big insights that either did or did not contribute to a horse's success? There was a team at Harvard that were doing studies of, on treadmills with quadrupeds, four-legged animals from turtles to elephants, iguanas to gazelles cats, dogs, and horses. And they were creating equations to describe it, it bioenergetics equations, and people latched onto that. We've had a lot of people who try to copy us, but that's so half-assed because they don't have the expert. They don't go to major. We went to major luminaries at major in the, each of the fields at major universities. We spent enormous amounts of time and money. They're trying to all do it on the cheap. But anyway, so they published these equations so a lot of people said, oh, we've got biomechanics for racehorses. And they would apply these energetic equations to tell you who was a good racehorse. But they were developed from iguanas and turtles and elephants. And they were really good for telling you whether it was an iguana or an elephant. But they weren't good for telling you whether it was an ordinary racehorse or a great racehorse. In fact, they were totally useless. I knew because I had spent a year and a lot of money and I had computer printouts of SAS, the statistical package, on exactly that, on horses' gates and the bioenergetic, all the biomechanical literature, all the stuff coming out in veterinary literature on it. And it was supposed to be gospel, and it was just wrong. It was useless. The heart stuff, I went to the leading cardiologist in the horses in the world, and I talked to him, and he showed me a big horse's heart in a jar and said, well, horses' hearts don't go as fast because look at the size and this and that. And at the time, they thought the horses, when they were galloping, like maybe 120 beats per minute. That was a big snag in developing my heart rate meter because it kept giving me numbers like 250. I thought there's something wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with it. When they were rocking and rolling down the stretch, they were up to 220, 250. And not only that, but their resting rates were as low as 25. And when you walked into the stall, that rate could go from 25 to 120, bang, like that. So the heart was not only goes faster than a human heart when they're at peak exercise, but it's more labile. It can go up and down more rapidly. The horse doesn't seem to have turned a hair, and he's gone from 25 beats a minute to 120 beats a minute just by looking at you. And so we learned a lot. We were learning about the horse, and we found out they were swimming horses. And we found that when you swim the horses, a lot of them panic and their heart rates go right through the roof and into arrhythmia. And that hurts them. And they end up blowing capillaries in their lungs and bleeding out their nose. And it's a health problem forever. We also found that the standard thing they were doing with the young horses when they started training them, the two-year-olds, some of them would go into arrhythmia and scare the shit out of them. And they would never run as fast as they could again. Horses are like that. They have a memory. If you 
walk on a horse, a young horse, and you slam it, you won't go through the gate, so you get mad and slam the gate on it. That horse will not be good around gates the rest of its life. And so if you take a young racehorse early on and scare the shit out of it, give it arrhythmias every time you make it fly, it's never going to try to keep up with our big athletes again. That meant that we had to walk into people who were successful and famous trainers and say stuff like that, that you're doing stuff wrong. I was nobody who knew nobody. They're thinking, who is this asshole from Harvard? He thinks he knows something. And what was the actual sort of on-ramp as far as disclosing your methods that you thought worked? As you mentioned, I'm assuming the reaction from most. The big on-ramp was after Ramsey. Ramsey didn't do it, even though I was working with him. He wouldn't tell people how good we were. Why would he want somebody else to use us? And Strawbridge, he got the two world champions, but it didn't seem to make any effect on anybody else. And it was the first two he'd ever had, really. He had some in Europe. But after that, fairly young, successful Egyptian businessman who made all his money with breweries in Egypt. He had somehow alcohol was forbidden and radical Islam or traditional Islam, but they do have breweries. And somehow his family got the right to all the breweries. And he made a lot of money and he wanted to go into racehorses. And he was in like his second year of racing. And so he gave me free reign. He would buy like $20 million of horses a year. And so we took him from dead start to the top, the number one stable in the United States in two years with a budget much lower than the Arabs or some of the other traditional guys were spending. 20 million sounds like a lot, but they spend a lot more. And that got noticed. They said, holy shit, what's his secret? He was very smart. He was a good manager and he had great trainers and we couldn't have done it without him and the access to great trainers. But it was also us. They couldn't have done it without us. We were the money ball. That was like 20, 15 years ago or something. And it ended up like five or six years later, we were American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown. First time in 37 years. Tell us that story because it's a good story. And I imagine most of the audience hasn't heard it, but. American Pharaoh story? Yeah. Well, first of all, we bought the dam and we were responsible for him keeping the sire. It was pioneer of the Nile. And then the dam, little Princess Emma. And. She got hurt like in her second race, but she had talent. So the reason we bought her was she was fit all these new criteria, heart, the gait, the this, the that, the diameter of her spleen, all these things. She was a very rare physical wonder. And so she became the mother of American Pharaoh. And then there was the Arab Spring and the Egyptian pound went down like 50%. And the military businesses, were, military guy was out and the businesses it was kind of like trouble getting money out. His business partners were military. So he was really affected by that. And he had this yearly that was beautiful. And our job was not only to buy horses, but to tell him what to keep and what to sell. So we go to Saratoga and we evaluate this horse. And he thought maybe he could sell it for a million dollars because it was beautiful. And we said to him, no, don't, I don't know if you have a cash flow problem right now, but don't sell this horse. This is really something. And we got to the point where we said, sell your house. Don't sell this horse. Somehow that got heard. It was the quote of the day in the New York Times. Friday in June, I think it was June 5th, the day before the horse won the Triple Crown. They had an article front page center about this guy. He was a passionate guy. He was a big gambler. He was in and out of financial trouble. Very smart. So anyway, that's that story. Sell your house. Don't sell this horse. So he didn't. I mean, and the interesting part is 
you guys actually had to buy it back, right? I mean, it was on auction. Yeah, you had to buy it back. It was in the auction at that point. But he bought it back for $300,000. So he had to pay the, what, the commission, the 5% or something. So the listeners who aren't familiar with horse racing, Triple Crown, and this was the first winner in how long? It's been years. 37 years. It's like there's a few records in all of sports. It's like hitting 400 in baseball. It hasn't happened in forever. But it's like winning the World Series, Super Bowl, and Stanley Cup all in one year and one horse. And it's such a rarity. And, the and funny he also thing, went on to win a world championship against older horses and set track records later in that year. Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned the horse went for 300 grand as a rebuy, which is great. How does the pricing of horses work? Because I know I've heard, what's the record? Probably in the millions for how much a horse? 16 million. Okay, that's, that's a lot. Private in an auction, but privately some go for a lot more than that. But for an unraced young horse, 16 million. I was there when that happened. And the day afterwards, I was interviewed and I said, well, there's a problem. The gate that it looks so wonderful is because it was using this called a rotary gallop. It's what they use to come out of the starting gate. And when they've changed leaves, they do it once. And it's not the normal racing gate. The footfalls come in a different pattern. And you can't do that in a race, the whole race, because it uses too much energy and it's too dangerous for other reasons. And I said, so I think it may be a problem. The horse never won a race. Wow. And so the day after they bought it, I have that in the Third Red Record magazine that they interviewed me. I said, I don't know. And nobody wanted to hear that shit. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned, I imagine in the early days, the betting, I mean, the auction markets were, quote, probably a little more inefficient. Has that changed over the years? No. Oh. Well, actually it is. They are more efficient, but there's more new money. The Wall Street kind of guys are in there now and they'll pay anything. And the average prices have gone way up and are kind of completely out of sync with the earnings ability of their horses. But no, it's, I'm absolutely amazed. It is still the pedigree is the number one thing these guys are looking at. There are all these pedigree experts. The data that they base it on is missing key variables. It's enormous amounts of money are spent at these auctions everybody's an expert and it's just most of it's ridiculous they watch the horse running they don't use what i use a high speed camera so i can slow it down and you can't use ordinary video because if you do when you try and stop it all you get is fuzz because the hooves are moving too fast and they don't think they need it they don't know it does it and so i see these horses and they do things when you look in slow motion that you know they're going to get hurt and they go for 400,000, 500,000. Or they have something, or they have a P heart. They have a tiny heart. And their chances of winning a graded stakes are like 20% of what they would be if it was normal. And they go for, a, because they got a great pedigree and they look good, they go for a ton of money. Or they pay the most money for the fastest horses. Horses that go nine and four-fifths seconds for an eighth of a mile. And they're, oh, as a fastest breeze at the show for the auction. And uh, 10 flat, but in a race, they don't go that fast. They don't go nearly that fast. They go a second or two and eighth slower than that. So what is the point? So if they go nine and four, then if the horse can go nine and four, what does that prove? May prove the opposite of what you want. Now you have a horse that can win the first half of the race and then he's going to (laughs) die. Or I watch it in slow motion. They say, yeah, it was fast. All right. And it was ugly. You should see what was going on with its ankles were twisted and its knees in the wrong direction. And it's not how fast they go. It's how they go fast. And then it's 
everybody see pretty much knows, and there's article about it all the time, that the horses at the yearly and two-year-old auctions, the unraced young horses that go for over a million dollars, most of them never do squat. But they still are just every one of those sales, there's multi-million dollar horses sold. We did what we did for Zayat, and our average acquisition price was $155,000. We didn't just have an unlimited budget so we could buy all the best horses. That's what they think. Well, I don't get the best horses because I can't spend the big money or I blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. It's because they don't know what they're doing. But you can tell that really makes friends. And well, there's influence. so many parallels to our world in the investing space, not just on public stocks, but on the, you see this with the private venture capitalists that will pay up in these massive rounds that you question, is it more about the investment in the business? Or is it more about sort of the signaling? You see that with the tuna auctions in Japan, where people pay these just insane amounts of money for a single tuna. Well, that still goes on. It's still people drinking beer and being silly. But I was going to say something else about the heart and the quant thing. One of the reasons whether or not heart size was related for a long time was very controversial. And a lot of people have tried to do it, but they couldn't make it work. They couldn't make the statistics work. They didn't understand how we did it. The way I did it was I just really studied it. And I realized that I needed to only compare horses that were within like 30 days of the age of the horse, the same sex, the same chronological age, not just generally, but very precisely. And they were the same height and weight because, you know, if a bigger horse would have a bigger heart. And so if a 900 pound filly that was born in May versus a 1200 pound colt that was born in March, it was, you can't compare them. You can't get, say, well, this one had a big heart and that one had a small. So we don't do that. But in order to have every combination of height and weight and sex and all, I had to have 10, 20,000 horses, plus all the crap that goes into it, the drugging and the injuries and, the, and all the noise in the data. I now have like more than 50,000 horses in that database where we rigorously, with some, with, and we had a technician who was, we proved we could be reproducible. The average person, the guy where they would read our paper and they would try out and do it, they would think they were going to get reproducible results. But you don't train a technician for something that precise they got to practice it. They got to do it hundreds of times when so they're not going to be reproducible. So I tell people, well, I remember some vet was telling our client, well, they could do everything they'd read the paper. And I said, well, that's like giving an instruction book and a violin to somebody and thinking they can play a symphony. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So it's just, you have to do the 10,000 horses and 50,000. You have to have a technician that's done a thousand. It's got to be rigorous and it's a lot of time and money and to get it right. And there's no shortcuts. But once we had the data, all of a sudden, what seemed to be about the heart size versus horses, which seemed to be impossible to prove, became clear. So as we look to the horizon, as this industry has evolved over the past few decades, what is being embraced today and what are some predictions going forward? I mean, is genotyping a thing where the genetics come into play? and DNA is coming in now, but a lot of that's it's got the same problem as all the other technology introductions. People going off half cocked and with stuff with methodologies that are pretty woeful. Too few horses, not enough variables considered. But I'm sure they'll get there with it. We've been working very hard at that. One of them was the had the speed gene, some Irish outfit, and they started out with 179 horses in the same guy's barn. And with DNA, honest to God, a lot of it whether the genes there, it's whether it's expressed, the environmental influence, there's 4 million things going on. A lot of it, nobody understands. 
they said they found the speed gene. And I thought that's like saying you found the health gene. It's ridiculous. There's 4 million things that go into how fast a horse runs, whether he's lame, whether he wants to, whether he's fit, whether he can, whether it hurt. There's so many things that go into it. You can't have one gene for speed. It was a myostatin inhibitor. There's a disease where this gene can make a baby look like a weightlifter or a little dog look like a muscled up. And so the horses that had, so they would be muscled up prematurely. And I was thinking, you think that's all there is to a good horse? It's so ridiculous. And call it the speed gene, but it's, they got a ton of money from investors and they're selling it all over the place. So what we did was we went back to our databases and took DNA samples on variables we knew were precise on one attribute, for example, not like health, but like Lugarg's disease. So we did it on the thickness of the septal walls of the left ventricle. And we knew had those measurements. We knew it related to performance. Could we find markers for it and that kind of thing? And so we've been developing, we actually have markers now that somehow help us identify the horses we used to have to do 22 tests on. And we got a lab in Lexington and the guy can do it overnight. And I had to search around for a guy in DNA. He's an MD and I needed somebody who was reasonable, rational, honest, not a promoter. So that's what we're doing. And it's coming. That's going to be the next big thing. And then the pedigree guys will all have heart attacks. <laughs> well, it's because they don't have big enough hearts or left ventricles. You got to sort right. the... <laughs> There'll be all these pedigreed horses that are going to come back with a missing key markers. And it's just all that expertise they think they have will become worthless. Well, it was always worthless, but they'll just finally realize it. You alluded to this earlier, but if you had to break it down as to say how much of the horse's eventual success is its tools, so it has all these 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 on all your metrics, and how much it is the actual training, jockey, and doing that the right way? Because you alluded to a certain things you shouldn't be doing in the training and racing of the horse as well. Is it like 90-10, 50-50? Well, the 90-10, 50-50, I mean, that way of thinking about it is not maybe the You best. can say foolish. <laughs> no, I won't say foolish. No, it makes Misguided. sense, but it's not, I can't answer that question. I know that if they don't have, it's more like the champions are like the chain holding the Queen Mary. If one of the links is paper mache, the chain breaks and the ship drifts away and you're screwed. Horses have, it's incredibly complex. Any one hole is a disaster. Really good horses may not be the best at everything, but they don't have holes in them and they want to do it. I mean, secret, you don't have to make them run. I've ridden racehorses in practice. The good racehorses, if you go out in a group of five horses, they want to be in front. If you don't let them be in front, they'll fight with the whole way. They'll kick. They'll try to throw you off. They'll kick other horses. And then other horses don't give a shit. They're happy to go on the back. And I don't know where you get that from. When somebody figures that out, that'll be great. Or if they could get a horse that could speak Spanish. One of the insights I heard you mention before was talking about horses on the longer tracks. It's less that they run faster at the end and more that the other horses are slowing down. Absolutely. But let me just say something about the 90-10 thing. Not just 90-10, but you want to think about the missing link or the weak link. But I think they have to have the stuff. I think like 50% is what I do. The jockeys are mainly there not to fuck it up. And there's four million ways they can make a horse go too fast early. They can interfere with him. They can hold him too tight. They can do this. They can do that. Some horses don't want to run company. They want, or they have such a long stride. They can't stretch out without clipping heels. 
So you have to keep him on the outside. There was a champion named looking at Lucky. Whenever he was inside among horses, he lost. When they caught him to the outside so he could stretch out at a huge long stride, he went by. So you had to know that and tell your jockey and have him do it. But the trainer is critical. And I don't know why. We've had two phenomenal, three phenomenally successful runs with some people, with some trainers. And then we've had the same groups of horses go to other trainers two or three times in big groups. And they did poorly. And they were the same horses. So some of these guys could take secretariat and not win a big race with them. And so the trainer's critical. I mean, some of it might be what they feed. You can screw it up by feeding them too much hay the night before the race by not having good management control over your help. Or maybe there's just drugs. I don't know. I tell owners, I say, if you're going to hire me and you really expect the kind of results I've had with the major stables where I've been really successful, then the trainer you use is absolutely critical. And there aren't that many good ones, in my opinion. They're good, but they're not great. You need great. Well, given the time of year, we can't not ask you, and I promise I won't hold you to it, but how's the field for the Derby look this year? Any favorites? I'm I'm really good at picking the Kentucky Derby because it's the first time they go a mile and a quarter. And what you said is right. The horses that usually win are not the horses that speed up at the end. It's the ones that don't slow down. And there's another reverse of the paradigm. We handicap not by how fast they go, but by how they slow down. And we do really well. Because almost always when you see a horse passing everybody, he's just not slowing down as much as the others were. We'll have a list for the Kentucky Derby, and we're really good at handicapping it. But I don't have it yet. I'll have it later in the week. Good. Well, I'm going to hit you up for it. You can go to our website. Maybe I'll put it up on our website, eqb.com. EQB, we'll link to it in the show notes, listeners. I'm less scientific. I'll probably do what is it, an exact trifecta? There's two horses that have bourbon in their name. So there you go. Being in Kentucky, that when makes I'm sense. When I got loose, I think it was this morning and ran all over the place. <laughs> well, got away from good his to know. groom. He was taking a bath and he ran all over the place, ran through manure piles. They have a video of it somewhere on the internet. That's one of the funny. bourbon ones. The Kentucky Derby really is a proof of the paradigm. You want to know what horse isn't slowing down, not who's the fastest, because it's a longer race than they're used to. So if you look back on your career, has there been a most memorable horse? And if you say American Pharaoh, you have to say a second one. I imagine that is certainly seared in your brain. The most memorable horse was Pinky Pizwanski. <laughs> I was trying to run a charity and raise funds with this charity in Philadelphia, working with inner city teens at the time. And Pinky Pizwanski was my biggest contributor. He earned like $200,000 15, 20 years ago for that charity. I named him. My father used to take funny names out of the newspaper for my sister, and I named him after that. But it turned out Pinky Pizwanski was the rider for Citation, was his exercise rider. He was the best rider for Hal Jones, who was a legend in horse racing. And they had to protect him because he was gay. He was openly gay back in 1946. Anyway, so I named the horse Pinky Pizwanski, and people came. I bought him for $35,000. And one of the things was when I went to see him before we bet on him, I kind of tried to get a sense of what he was thinking and think. And somebody said to me, well, what's he thinking? I said, he's thinking, what are you looking at? (laughs) He had the greatest attitude. He had a crummy pedigree or no pedigree at all. He was not intimidated by anything or anybody. Billy Turner trained him for me, the guy who trained Seattle Slough. And we had a good run and a lot of fun. I managed him very poorly then. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had a miler and I tried to run him further. It was very fast. There was like a 21-year-old record at Laurel, the Kelso, 
who was like a horse of the year seven times, had set 21 years at his son. He was equal that track record, and he still lost to some horse that day. But anyway, I just loved that horse. And he was funny. Pinky Pizwanski, we had a lot of fun with. So somebody said, well, it's about time somebody named a horse after Pinky Pizwanski. And I said, why? And they told me the whole story. And I didn't believe it. So I was at a dinner table with somebody, the guys down at the sale one time, and there was a trainer there who had been a groom for Hal Jones. I asked him, was there a special rider? He said, oh, yeah, Pinky. When he died, they found $20,000 in his mattress at the racetrack. <laughs> How much of a role and influence does the gambling world play? There's been some analytics on that side with the Alan Woods and Bill Bentners of the world. Does that have a pretty big influence? I actually saw yesterday that this is new to me, but there is now a online, I don't know if you call it a video game, but a website called Zed Run that lets you buy and invest and breed in digital crypto horses. And there's people that have paid ten to $100,000 to own some digital horses, which is a sort of crazy idea. That's wild. Yeah, it's called Zed Run. I work for some of the whales, the big betters, and I've developed and stuff along the lines of what Alan Wood did, algorithms. And you have to be able to do like 50 bets right before the gate opens, bang. You have to have the rink link, not just to the racetrack, but to the tote, which is the racetrack is sending bets. I've done all that. I know something about it. And it's interesting. The whole sport basically is supported by gambling and betters. And most of the betting is done by a relatively small number of people. But there's no crossover between the horsemen and the most of the racing owners and fans and, and the, bet, the big betting stuff that's driving the economics. It's just a really very separate. And the Alan Wood kind of stuff really doesn't care who wins the race. They're arbitraging the difference between all the cracks in the system, basically. And they don't care. They can make 1% or 2% a day, which is what, 60% a month. So what do they care? And they'll bet six horses in a race with eight horses in it. How much you bet on each horse is all quant stuff. But I move in that world. I've worked in that world. It just seems to be totally unconnected, except that the racetracks have figured out who these guys are. And they create offshore places where they can bet on them. They try to find all ways to separate out that income and keep more of it for themselves than they have to share on other kinds of bets with the horsemen in the state. But it's just another strange thing about horse racing, that there's such a disconnect. Well, Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. You mentioned it, but where do people go? They want to find out more about you and find your derby picks. What's the best place? My website. I'll put something up later in the week. EQB, like equine biometrics, eqb.com. That's us. I love it. But I never did it for the money. I love horses and I wanted to work with them. It's a Damon Runyon story every day at the racetrack. It's fun. Guys Good. and dolls. Maybe we'll jenny up a syndicate of podcast listeners and all buy fractional shares in a horse next year. But I got to warn you, all my followers like me are cheap bastards. So we're going for the undervalued horse. Well, that's fine. It doesn't, doesn't bother me. That's Actually good, because then you'll buy the scratch and dent with something wrong, which doesn't make any difference. Or you'll buy the one with supposedly a pinky Pizwanski with no pedigree. I love it, Jeff. will be the giant killer. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>